Hello, friend. You are listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod, an all things Wizard of Oz podcast that will take you over the rainbow and down a yellow brick rabbit hole as we pull back the curtain on American culture's most visited fairyland. We are your hosts, Tara and MK, the royal revisionists of Oz and roommates in Queens, New York here to preserve the rustic emeralds of yesteryear and reimagine an Oz for today and future generations. This season, we will be deep diving with the melodies of the many musical adaptations of L. Frank Baum's original Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, taking up residency in the 1939 classic MGM film, as well as the 70s super soul hit, The Wiz. Visit our Insta at Down the Yellow Brick Pod for an accompanying scrapbook and fave space to connect, as well as our Patreon community where we continue the escapism and entertainment with Tiny Oz concerts, acoustic coffee shop covers and mashups, not sponsored by NPR, and other good witchy perks for each Patreon tier. Our Patreons are truly our MVPs. Consider joining our Oz fam today, it would truly make our day. May the world of Oz continue to be a bewitching escape in bewildering years, nostalgic and nuanced, and a magical refuge where two gals and queens can cross yellow brick roads with wonders like you. Hey, Tara. Amy. Hey, Tara. We're starting a new era. <laughs> we are. New era. Fabulous 40s. Hello soulful 70s we are really skipping some some decades here yeah we're moving forward <laughs> the fashion has changed there's yes. a lot of changes ahead all, just the fashion nothing else changed nothing else changed only the clothes that's all we care about now nothing else. so Tara, this is exciting we are venturing into the world of the whiz and i know I mean, we are both very excited to to dive in is an expedition. <laughs> We're ready. We're ready. So before we even begin to talk about the whiz, um, presencing the time period that we are now in, as you mentioned, we're in the early 1970s. Yeah. An interesting time. <laughs> so to be exact, that's when the speed of the whiz would start to present itself. So to start us off, I have a fun, uh, lightning round trivia Broadway history lesson for you, test for you. As you said that, 85 sirens just went off in New York City, and that's what my brain did too. Ah! Not my era. I'm excited to know if I know anything. Okay. Okay. This is awesome, Em. Thank you for doing this. Of course. I'm excited. Okay. Can you tell me, maybe it... And this is a this is kind of a trick. It's not a trick question. It's hard because not all of these musicals won. <laughs> not all the musicals won the Tony Award, but can you just give your best guess? What was like the biggest hit of the Broadway season 19? Let's start with 1970 to 1971. No options? You're just letting me go for it? <laughs> options. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Follies. Sodheim. Godspell. No turn back. <laughs> Old man. I'll sing a little. Jesus Christ Superstar. 
What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. This is amazing. No, no, Nanette. No, no, do I not know a song? Oh, wait, no, I do. T for two and two for T. Incredible. Why for me? Um, This is amazing. Okay, what do you think? What do you think was like the biggest hit? I want to say Jesus Christ Superstar with Andrew Lloyd Webb's. Mm. But I also could be losing my mind. Oh my gosh, you're crushing this right now. (laughs) Okay, so here's where I'm getting my source. This is a book. It's called Broadway Musicals. The biggest hit and the biggest flop of the season, 1959 to 2009 by Felicia. So this is this is according to him the biggest hit of 1970 to 71 was No No Nanette. Yeah, revival. The revival. Right? The revival. People wanted nostalgia. People oh, wanted yeah. familiar. This yeah. new rock and roll. What's happening? Why is it on my Broadway stage? What's the buzz? Tell me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want these right. movies over. People what are not it? ready. No, people and like let's be real, y'all. Broadway audiences, traditionally conservative white folks. So exactly. thank you for practicing. They're clutching onto those revivals. They give want us the, give us the no no Nanette. Yes, yes, Nanette. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Okay, let's do another one. Okay. 1971 to 1972. I have a feeling you'll know this one. What was like the biggest buzz? Tell me what's a happening. Was it Grease? Oh yeah. Pippin. Oh yeah. Sugar? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Flatter, flower, not the right Definitely one. <laughs> that one. Those are your options. Um, it was not sugar. I could tell you that. Not sugar. <laughs> or Pippin, because Ben Vereen was, he had magic to do. Just <laughs> and he had a lot taking, of money. He was taking over in terms of Broadway legends being created. Right. Grease, though. I don't think Greece really shook things up the way Pippin did on Broadway at the time. I think Greece grew into its iconic musical status with the film later on in the 70s. So I'm going to go with... Gotta find my corner! <laughs> okay, I agree with you. Okay. Am I wrong? Pippin... According to this book, okay, getting my facts straight. For 1971 to 72, he says Greece was the biggest hit. For 1972 to 73, Pippin was the biggest hit. So you won. You got it right. Pippin also won the Tony Awards. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, last one. You're doing awesome. And this is all, you know, how do you decide what's the best? But just presencing what shows we had to work with. 1974 to 1975. Here are some options. Okay. Over here. Over there. (laughs) I don't know what that is. Chicago. Yes. A chorus line. Dance 10 looks three. And I'm still on employment, dancing for my own enjoyment. That ain't it, kid. That ain't it, kid. Oh, my gosh. We're just doing our own solo show over here. Duet show. And the way my god Robert Goulet <laughs> I could play any part I would probably want to play that one <laughs> that's Phoebe I got you <laughs> Robert Goulet our last option is the whiz <laughs> that's all I can that's what I, when I hear the whiz I 
Oh yeah. Straight away. Straight away. Okay. What would be your choice? My, I would definitely think chorus line because it won a Pulitzer Prize. Right. It was also, you know, it's crazy that you bring up a chorus line. I just finished reading Fun Home, the Mm. novel that inspired the musical that was, yeah, Fun Home was 2015. So I finally read the graphic novel it was based off of by Alison Bechtel. So good. she talks about seeing Chorus Line on Broadway with her dad and it being a revolution for her because she never heard anyone talking about being gay. Mm-hmm. Bare with one light hitting a person on a Broadway stage. Just what it was like to be gay being publicly stated. So I forgot that about Chorus Line because now that isn't really something that is abnormal. You know? Yeah. I think what is cool right now about entertainment is the embracing or or what I'm seeing at least of gender fluidity and identity and sexual expressions. That's how I learn. I feel like the most about identities and labels and everything. Mm -hmm. But at that time, Chorus Line was, no one has seen anything like it. No one had gotten that behind the scenes look to at what it means to be a dancer booking show to show on Broadway and how, what kind of a beat up lifestyle that can have all the dark pills that you swallow to do such things, um, to make your dreams of performance a reality. It was finally exposed for the first time. I really love a chorus line. I got to do it twice. So I definitely fell down every rabbit hole when yes. I did. Mine. I love um, it. Too. I only did it once, but it was unforgettable, unforgettable experience. I'll never do it again because turn turn out in would be me going. Can I do? <laughs> oh, I I had panic attacks. I was like, I can't do this tap number. Can I be cut? Can Maggie get cut? That tap number. I'm wagging my finger at that tap number. I Michael Bennett, the choreographer, was not a tapper, and he choreographed some weird, weird ass tap. So hard. It was so weird. It did not make sense. And they put no me sense. in the front, and I was like, Why? Why me? Why am I here? And for those who don't know, Chorus Line, whenever it's redone and restaged, even the recent revival that happened in 2008, I want to say, the recent revival, um, it's usually always done with the original concept because the original concept was so groundbreaking. People want to see that choreography. And also, most of the choreography is built in to the music, but it's just an audition process. You're basically just wishing, you're witnessing an audition process. for 90 minutes of your life. <laughs> and if you're in the show, you're a part of it for 90 minutes and you kind of want to cry, but it's so much fun. So it was a chorus line. I just gave a whole long back. I loved that. Well, according to this guy, Peter, it was the whiz, which we love. I want the whiz to get all the love, but I feel like chorus line was, was, it was yes. Ticket. It was huge. I agree with you. And I mean, just if anyone ever looks into this book, he kind of prefaces that in the beginning of like, these are sort of based on not just Tony awards and accolades, but maybe box I, think office? I think he's basing it off of a lot of different, different things, maybe box office. And as, I mean, as we'll get into obviously talking about the whiz, like how they used advertising, just different groundbreaking things that made it different, you know? Yes. The whiz so, is groundbreaking in the advertising department. And yeah. what is so cool about the whiz coming into the whiz now after being in the wizard of Oz and MGM yeah. land is the MGM musical has never quite found its positioning on Broadway, mm-hmm. but the Wiz really did find yeah. this beautiful birthing place 
in the Broadway community. And then quite crack the film world. The film has kind of a cultish affection to it. I think the film is amazing. It wasn't as acclaimed as something like MGM, but I love that you said, well, we have to remind ourselves, we base these critically acclaimed opinions off of certain people um, with certain demographics, you know, and that gets a little, a little tricky to navigate. Um, But the Wiz film would not take on the legend, the, the legacy that the musical did and vice versa for MGM. MGM would never really make a groundbreaking, the MGM musical will never be a groundbreaking musical on Broadway. Right. So that's pretty cool that this is where we're at now in 1970s from what we're gathering and what's where we're going to go into next. It was a yeah. very interesting era, mm-hmm. which I feel like you could say about any era, but specifically the seventies mm-hmm. was still segregated in terms of art, very oh segregated. Um, but starting to show the possibilities of integration yeah. in art forms, but still like lots of racial tension that was never resolved from the civil rights movement. Honestly, what we're still dealing with today. Uh-huh. Um, so, okay. Um, let's buckle up and get into our 1970s. Buckle up y'all we be putting on i feel like i'm putting on bell bottoms oh i've got yeah some like bell bottom overall thing situation hoop earrings oh give me the hoop earrings like platform shoes <laughs> let's, let's let's go to the 70s let's do it Listeners, you are listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod with MK and Tara. Tara and MK, we're all here. We're so excited to be diving into setting the scene for 19. The year 1971 is where we are beginning as we begin on the road to the Wiz musical today. We're not diving into the film just yet. We're setting the stage for the actual Broadway show. So as Tara mentioned, 1971 in particular was quite a there was a lot going on in this year. And I really want to presence what you said, Tara, of there's a big crossover from the civil rights movement, what's happening in the 1960s in America into early 1970s. Um, From my research, it sounds like a lot of what was happening civil rights wise in the 60s was sort of being put to the test in the early 70s. It wasn't just like solidified. We're good now. It was kind of like the country's still divided. People have all of their very polar opposite feelings and opinions. Um, pre- uh, the president at this time is Richard Nixon. <laughs> so keep that in mind. He's in his first term. He's beginning in 1971. His um, basically the uh, you know re-election for the second term, um, which we know later on, you know, Watergate will happen in a few years from now. The first time we would hear out of his mouth. Um, there's a war on drugs. Mm-hmm. 1971. Yes. Yes. So um, just to the racial tension fire right off the bat. Right off. Yep. Right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. 
As far as music, just to presence fun, um, what people were listening to, people were listening to eight track tapes of Jackson Brown, Olivia Newton-John, Donna Summer, Marvin Gaye. The disco sound um, was rising with it. The sounds of ABBA, the, the Bee Gees. Um, on the rock front, we have bands like uh, the Rolling Stones, Van Halen, Pink Floyd, and a personal fave of ours, Queen. They were dominating the airwaves. Yes. What's do you know? What's going on was written in 1971 in response to police brutality. Oh, Marvin Gaye, y'all. That album. It's actually earlier this year. I looked up the Rolling Stone like 500 greatest albums of all time. They updated it for 2020. Maybe it was last year, actually. It's no longer 2020. Um, And I think his is number one. I think that album is number one. And they talk about how... That in the show notes for folks. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that article. Yeah. Huge. He's a huge, yeah, player at this time. I didn't know it was that year, though. That's cool. 1971. Mm-hmm. So some landmark events, just to set the scene. In January 1971, the landmark television sitcom All in the Family, starring Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker, debuts on CBS. March 31st, I had no idea the first Starbucks coffee shop opens in Pike Place Market. 100%. I had no idea it goes that far back. Welcome, Green Mermaid. (laughs) There she is. (laughs) I don't know if they had that. (laughs) April 24th, 500,000 people in Washington, D.C. and 125,000 people in San Francisco march in protest against the Vietnam War. Fun fact, June 18th, Southwest Airlines begins its first flights between Dallas and San Antonio. I fly. I love Southwest. So they're here. (laughs) July. Mega bus of the air sometimes. (laughs) I will give Southwest folks are very funny and really good at their customer service jobs. Customer service going. But those flights are not comfiest. They're expensive. (laughs) The only reason that I try to fly them is because they are pretty good about their change fees, which is helpful. That is helpful. I do change things a lot. Well, they that's amazing. 1971 debuting. I know, right? Uh, the July 5th, the right to vote, the 26th Amendment, is formally certified by, by Nixon, which lowers the voting age from 21 to 18. And October 1st, Walt Disney World opens in Orlando, Florida. So those are just some fun, you know, big things happening. Can I add a few things to this? Of course. So in 1971, cigarettes were now being seen as a threat mm-hmm. to sophistication of what smoking was, was losing its charm, mm-hmm. losing its power, and starting to be taken out of broadcasting materials and promotion because they were knowing, they were finding out that it was linking to medical complications and cancers yeah. and all of that. Yeah. So that smoking of the 60s was starting to disappear. Charles Manson's freaking trial was 19... Yeah. <laughs> Dear oh God. Gosh, you won't let even just let that hang yeah. because... Just let that be there own thing but this was also a time too when the beatles had split and they were all starting to go off on their own path so people were following john and yoko a lot of tension there too a lot of people blame yoko ono for the breakup of the beatles so that was all going on at the time Mm -hmm. other little things like muhammad ali is huge in 1971 Mm -hmm. also a direct influence on the Wiz, which we'll talk about later um 
there's the first ever black baseball announcer, Bill White. So there is a lot of this first ever for black artists, black um, journalists, um, all different kinds of professions starting to happen. Um, She's a lady was a very popular song of 1970. Love it. Okay. Hilarious. A lot of my research also just led to very specific um, race riots that were still happening all across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Crazy things that happened. And this, I think this tells it all. Um, Ed Sullivan was done in 1971. Soul Train in 1971. I mean, there it is. Ed Sullivan is... I think of Ed Sullivan, I think of black and white. I think of the most American Pie, which American Pie, that song also came out in 1971. But I think of like American Pie, rosy cheeked performers, like the good old boy next door singing a tune. When I think of Ed Sullivan, then Soul Train comes on and like there's hip movement, there's shoulder movement, there's a little bit more in the body um, and it's mostly black performers coming onto the air. It was one of the longest running syndicated programs in American television history featuring black musical acts and dancers. Pretty crazy. So that's a crazy crossing point and things like also people were overdosing at concerts of the Grateful Dead. That was a huge thing that happened. So drugs are definitely an issue there's high level problems like i think 30 people overdosed at a lead i'm sorry at a grateful dead concert from lsd oh my gosh at a concert they died died. crazy and things like willy wonka was one of the best movies of the time so tell us because that movie is crazy i love it but it also captures this love of fantasy that's exists. Gloria Steinman is really on the rise in the feminist movement. She makes an address to women in America. Mm. Ku Klux Klan are still around and there's 10 school bus bombings that they were found responsible for um, in the South. So all of this is happening. The death of Ed Sullivan and the birth of Soul Train is a huge thing to witness in one year. That's huge. And the fact that there's these little refuges that people are retreating to, like Willy Wonka mm-hmm. uh, and Disney World. And yep. yeah, this embracing of magical places, but all this horror still happening. Yeah. With black versus white and the Vietnam War still being on the fringes of everything. Mm-hmm. What a year. I mean, I didn't think I would, my mind would be so blown open, but also I feel we could say that about this year. Yes. No, I agree completely. I mean, in the research that I did, it it always, I mean, particularly this year in the early 1970s, it feels like a, like, I don't know if this is correct. It feels like a transition, like an awkward transition time. I mean, keep in mind, like 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated. 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. So it feels like there's all like people don't know what to do. You and know? retreating to music. Music was yes. in a beautiful place and was very integrated in terms of what was on the Billboard top hits. Yeah. Very um and I will say mostly of black artists and white artists. Still lack of representation strongly in other marginalized communities. Yeah. Um but yeah, the, that is really wild. Yeah, this I didn't even think about this that the like lack of leadership. 
the great leaders have gone. Mm-hmm. That's so wild. Yeah. It just Broadway, feels like the murky area, you know. And Broadway didn't know what it was at all because no. the pop music used to be informed by Broadway, but now the Broadway sound was follies, right? Right. Like, no, 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 that. No, 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 that. Sondheim... Sondheim was able to capture, I think, a conversational quality that bridges together contemporary relevance to great musicals of the past that, you know, like the golden age that we associate, the Rodgers and Hammerstein's, the Lerner and Lowe's, all that stuff. But yeah, Jesus Christ Superstar is on Broadway with your good man, Charlie Brown, I think came out in 1971 too. So again, like it's just kind of all over the place. Broadway doesn't really know what it is. And this new pop sound is coming to Broadway as opposed to the other way around. Um, yeah. Oh, and Kander and Ebb too. They were just starting out. This is mm-hmm. the beginning of Kander and Ebb. I think they had 70 girl. Oh God. I don't even, it, uh, there's a few songs I like from the show. 70 girl, 70. So they were just starting to get their footing, but they didn't have their big uh, blockbuster successes yet. Right. Wow. Oh, what a weird, weird time. And yeah. What else do you want to share about, the 70s. <laughs> well, yeah, going off of what we were mentioning earlier, all of these uh, civil rights court rulings and changes in society were being tested. Um, obviously, as we could guess, a lot of the opposition was coming from white people, people who were like right. feeling threatened, I guess. But then there was there were also other you know white people who were embracing it and trying to support. Um, some of the most significant groups uh, in the civil rights activism specter were the American Indian movement and the Black Panthers. Yes. So, and I'll link some of the resources that I pulled this information from, but um, just diving a little bit into the Black Panther Party, um, they rose to power in the late 1960s and they were a really big deal. They were like the most significant influential race-based organization in America. Um, but as we will get into, I'd love to talk about Fred Hampton just for a moment, just to kind of give us like one example, one major example of, to kind of give us that context of the racism still going on. Um, because I will be completely honest. There are times when I think of the seventies and I'm like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. Like things were better. Right. And it's like, no, there was a lot of shit (laughs) still going on. This is what's been really cool about this. I think if you would have asked me, what do you think about when you think of 1971? I think I see a dirty Times Square and that's about it. Yes, yes, yes. And that is correct. (laughs) That's about it, though. Like, I see, (laughs) like, porn movie theaters and, like, you know, like, that was kind of the vibe that I remember being presented of 1970s culture, which is terrible, but that's what is in, in my brain for however true or false that might be. But I couldn't tell you anything that we just explored in this kind of detail. And the fact that we're now 50 years from 1971. That's crazy. And it doesn't feel like there's that much of a gap. Right. Continue right. on. I would love to hear about Fred Hampton. Okay. So before the Black Panther Party was kind of going to disseminate, if you will, by the end of 1971. Um, so, so Judas and the Black Messiah, it actually came out in 2021. Um, 
And it is about the the Black Panther Party, but it's specifically focusing on Fred Hampton, who is played by the incredible Daniel Kaluuya, and um, how he was betrayed by an informant, William O'Neill, played by Lakeith Stanfield. And after I watched this film, like, you know us, listeners, like, when we find something interesting, we will obsess. I, this was all I could think or talk about for weeks. I, I think I stayed up to like 3 a.m. one night just reading articles. So I would really recommend this film. But um, I mean, spoiler alerts. I mean, this is history. So just a brief summary of Fred Hampton, this incredible black man. Um, he came to prominence in Chicago. He was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, he was such an incredible speaker. And we really I got that from the film of like he could just really rally people's emotions and activism. And the Black Panther Party was very controversial. Some people thought they were too aggressive, I guess, or like violent. Um, so that's a whole, you know, historical rabbit hole we don't have much time for today, but keep that in mind. So basically the FBI, um, which was led at this time by J. Edgar Hoover, which whom we've talked about before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> boo, insert boo sounds. They were really they were really threatened by by Hampton and they thought that he was a major threat, of course. So they began monitoring him. They tapped his mom's phone. They would keep really close tabs on his activities. Um, Hoover was obviously threatened. He thought the Panthers, the young patriots and the young lords um, who were also um, activists, activist groups at this time, um, they were going to basically overpower white people, I suppose. Um, so the FBI opens a file on Hampton in 1967. So this is a few years prior, just to give us some context. Um, they tap his mom's phone in 1968. Um, Hampton is placed on the FBI's agitator index as a key militant leader. Uh, yeah. An act on the agitator index. Didn't know that existed. Qualified for being an agitator. Right. We'll right. You're agitating the U.S. government. You have to be fighting for change for the better. <laughs> um, so here's where, yeah, which we should all be doing. Um, I want to be an agitator. So, okay, here's where things get kind of crazy and where the film actually begins. So late 1968, um, the FBI basically recruits William O'Neill to become an informant in the Black Panther party here in this Illinois chapter. He had been arrested twice for interstate car theft and impersonating a federal officer. And basically in exchange for having his felony charges dropped, he O'Neill agreed to infiltrate the Black Panther Party as an as a counterintelligence operative. So he basically became really close with Fred Hampton. He's black M. I'm sorry. Black M. Yes, he is a black man. Yes. O'Neill. So he becomes close with Fred Hampton. He's like rising in the ranks of the Black Panther Party. Fred obviously doesn't know that he's an informant. And um, basically how this all sort of now leads to Fred Hampton's murder. Um, early October 1969, uh, Fred Hampton and his girlfriend, Deborah Johnson, who is still alive today, she is uh, now known as Akua Najiri. 
Um, she was pregnant with their first child, Fred Hampton Jr., who is also still alive today. They rented a four and a half room um, apartment close to the Black Panther Party headquarters and a few other Black, par- Black Panther Party members lived there as well. Um, so the FBI basically orchestrated an armed raid with the Chicago police and state attorney on Hampton's Chicago apartment. They had obtained detailed information about the apartment, including the whole layout of the apartment from William O'Neill, the informant. Uh, an augmented, uh, a 14-man team raided their apartment at like 4 a.m. So even leading up to that night, this was the night of December 3rd, um, 1969. Uh, Hampton came home from teaching uh, a political education course at a local church. Um, Several of other Panthers and Johnson were there. O'Neill was already there. O'Neill made everyone a dinner and O'Neill slipped basically a drug into Fred's drink that made him fall asleep while he was talking to his mom on the phone at 1.30 a.m. on December 4th. So Hampton falls asleep. He's now drugged. 4 a.m., the, you know, they had been tapping his phone, so they know he's asleep now. Uh, 4 a.m., these uh, FBI people run in, and I'll try to just describe this sensitively. Um, they they basically stormed in um and there was one black panther member mark clark who was basically like guarding the entrance cuz i mean there was always activity happening they sh- they did shoot him and they killed him and it this is where things get fuzzy but there was a bullet hole like from the panthers side and they think it was mark just like after he was shot like it just went off like involuntarily and that was actually the only shot that was fired from the Black Panthers. Was any of the FBI members injured? Not mm. that, not to my knowledge. How come they just get to kill people? I'm very confused. This is where, yeah, this is the problem. Yeah. So Hampton was asleep on a mattress in the bedroom with his girlfriend, Johnson. Um, and keep in mind, she's nine months pregnant at this moment. They remove her from the room. Um, Hampton... Did she go into labor? She didn't. Um, I believe it was four weeks later she gave birth to their son, Fred Hampton Jr. Um, and basically there was just like uh, dozens of bullets. They were just kind of like firing as they're going in and everyone's, you know, freaking out. And the the Panthers are, they don't even know what's happening. And so it's thought that Fred Hampton was wounded from one of those bullets just kind of like firing off. Um, I believe everyone else was okay. I could be wrong about that. Um, And here's the, sorry listeners, but here's like a really hard part. And I just wanted to, the reason that I'm just sharing this is number one, the movie just came out and I think it's really important to watch. And number two, this happened two years before what were the time period we're presenting. (laughs) So like um, another Black Panther, Harold Bell said that he heard the following exchange from the, um, people shooting. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. And then they heard another shot and they said, he's good and dead now. (sighs) So Hampton was murdered and shot multiple times. Um, By the U.S. government. By the U.S. government. Like this was all orchestrated in tandem with the Chicago police, in tandem with the head of the FBI, 
they just killed him literally because he they thought he was a threat because he was rising in prominence in this in the Black Panther Party, which was obviously fighting for equal equality for black people. So people are exhausted in 1971. That's basically what I wanted to share is I think it's easy to think of. I mean, maybe I'll just speak for myself. It's very easy to be like the 1960s were when it was like at its height and people were riled up. It's like, no, this was a huge, huge moment in the civil rights movement and just a huge tragedy. And I just encourage y'all to look into this, even if you don't watch the movie, like his girlfriend is, she was actually his fiance, pardon me, is still alive and their son is still alive and they still like go to marches. They still speak out. They were on the set of this movie. So this is not over, you know, and I'll, if you want to research like what happened afterwards, because there was then a whole bunch of like trials and confusion. And one last thing, just because now I'm really fired up is at a press conference the next day, the police announced the arrest team had been attacked by the violent and extremely vicious Panthers and defended themselves accordingly. In a second press conference on December 8th, the police leadership praised the assault team for their, quote, remarkable restraint, quote, bravery, and, quote, professional discipline in not killing all the Panthers present. Excuse me? So just to wrap us up, um, 5,000 people attended his funeral. He was eulogized by Black leaders, including Jesse Jackson, Ralph Abernathy. Jackson has seen everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to see see him speak, and that's what really? I think of. Oh my gosh! It's just you have seen everything. You have spoken at so many eulogies. I can't even. Yeah, he was there. And so, just so we know, yeah, just presencing, you know, his fiance Johnson. She gave birth to Fred four weeks after witnessing his death, and they've really gone on to. I mean. They shouldn't have had to do that, but they've gone on to speak out, obviously, about that terrible injustice. They're still around today. Um, so I, I I, just, yeah, this is when I read the story. I had never, I had unfortunately never heard of Fred Hampton. So I just wanted to presence that. The reason we don't know his story and mm-hmm. it's not taught because our government, it, the finger would point right back. so that was really i mean that was at the tail end of 1969 so really barely a year before this yeah so that just even solidifies i think more of this okay we had this big moment we're giving equal rights right that's what's happening how do we do that no one still knows how to do that and racism is still not being addressed from within we're not talking about like white folks having to deal with the fact that this is deeply ingrained brainwashing mm-hmm. um, and what it means to create true equity and what we have to give up to do that. Right. Um, no one's talking about any of that, but people are trying to get, trying to go along. And I'm glad the Wiz was born in this time because also need to have escapism also need to have you need art shows us a world we don't have yet right shows us a world that we could make but it's not quite there and 
that's why I love art. That's why when I walk through the subways and if there's a mural, I stop because I'm in the stinky, smelly subways, but all of a sudden there's a mural that reminds me how beautiful this city is. So I think that's what the Wiz is going to do in this time frame, especially as a huge significance to the black community being having representation on a Broadway stage when every odd was against them. So let's get into these odds. Let's get into it. And also just to um, correct myself, since I want to be sure I'm yeah, go for it. research, right? Um, I think I said that some of the other Black Panther members who were there, like, were fine. They were seriously wounded. I just saw in my research. So apologies. They they were seriously wounded. They lived, but they were... They, they lived, but they, they, were, they were also beaten. They were dragged into the street. They were arrested on charges of aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers, each held on $100,000 bail. So just wanted to add that in. Making it impossible to fight. Ah, so that's where we are. So thank you for going down that rabbit hole. Thank you for sharing. This is important. We can't just present to you the whiz without telling you where our country specifically. We we pretty much focus on America. Of course, globally, there's even more going on. But just presencing where our country was at, where this musical would make no sense to any of us. Yes. Okay. Well, I had a dream. (laughs) Ken Harper. He's only just a a 32-year-old program affairs director at WPIX Radio in New York. Had a dream, okay? (laughs) Wanted to produce a TV special that would retell popular American stories as musicals using music composed by pop composers. So this is kind of a groundbreaking idea. Um, pop songs and sass. Pop songs and sass. Um, so he starts talking about this with friends of his. He's a really good schmoozer, this darling 32-year-old man, Ken Harper. Really good schmoozer, starts telling friends, and then he meets this guy named Michael Brown at a cocktail party, and he shares this. And Michael says back to him, and I'm not sure of Michael Brown's race, actually. Um, it's not noted here. And I tried Googling him, and he's not coming up in my Google search. But Michael shares a huge thing. He says, right now, all Black casts are in. You should make it something that's all Black. And Ken Harper is Black. Um, that that would be groundbreaking. Just gives a little, like, make it an all Black experience. Um, and again, like we just presenced all this history just a little bit more, even though black folks were gaining rights in America, there were less middle-class black black families than ever before. And poverty was spreading. Um, and a lot of black youth were being drafted to Vietnam and not returning. So that's another reality of this time. And like Nixon was just ignoring racial issues because we kind of had a progressive presidency that, of course, had its own assassination with Kennedy before all of this. And then like America does, we go back to this make America great again motto, which is I don't know what that is. Like we never were great. So I don't know what we're going back to. So that is happening at this time, too. Oh, a little bit about Michael Brown. I do know a little bit about him. He was highly involved. M, you know how much I love industrial shows. I love the, the golden age industrial musicals. I think is what I've talked about this on our podcast already. I think it's what needs to come back for 
artists, especially stage artists, to have living, um, have lifestyles that can support today's circumstances and mm-hmm. bills and all the things because right. they were huge in the golden age of Broadway and they kept artists afloat, not just stage actors, like composers. So Michael Brown was someone who did a lot of composing for these industrial musicals. It's noted here. Oh, and let me pause, full pause. This resource that I'm look I'm coming from is called How the Wiz Was, the making mm-hmm. of one of the biggest musical hits of the 70s. This book is very um I okay. This book should be more known than it is. This was a at an independent bookstore. Cannot find it on me. I couldn't find it. I I was Googling it, Tara. I couldn't even find it. Who wrote it? I think it was independently um, published. So that's why it might be a little tricky to find. His name is Jeremy Ofterhide. I hope I'm saying his last name right. Jeremy Ofterhide. Can't find much about him either. So the fact that this, I found this book at the Lit Bar, which is one of my favorite bookstores (laughs) in New York. It's in the Bronx. All black woman business owned. Big shout out to Lit Bar. Order books from them. They're fantastic. So I just also feel like this book is a miracle that it's in our hands. Um, (laughs) Going back to Michael Brown. Yeah. Highly involved in industrial musicals. Also had written songs for some Broadway musicals like the New Faces of 1952, the Lizzie Borden pieces, New Faces of 1956. He did The Washingtons Are Doing Okay. So lots of fun commentary pieces. Also supplied additional lyrics for house of flowers which was a huge a huge musical of this time and he had a lot of um he worked in nightclub reviews just presencing a little bit about who he was and he would eventually write and direct his own broadway musical called different times in 1972 it did not do well but he was here he was doing his thing he loved this industry apparently also right now the divide, like we were talking about, was very strong between white art and black art. Uh-huh. Um, and white people were not really gravitating um, to a lot of the truthful black art that were that was angry about what was happening. White people would kind of ignore um, and turn the other way. Um, so this massive divide that was present in entertainment, um, Ken was starting to think, oh, how can I help? How can I do something about this? How can I make something where if you're a black character, you're not playing a drug dealer, you're not playing a pimp, you're not playing an activist or a servant, all these tropes that black people were being associated with in the entertainment industry beforehand. Um, So Ken and Michael really were putting their heads together. And then in July 1971, Ken walked in to WIP, PX, he walked in a program director and he walked out a jobless guy because he wanted to make whatever this was, this new retelling of old stories with pop music. He wanted to make this thing happen. So he just dumped everything and put everything into this. Never had done any kind of producing work before. Crazy, 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 but really good schmoozer. He's a wizard. We're going to talk more about Ken. He is a wizard. So Michael and Ken would form this production company called Harpsichord Productions. They would start seriously shopping this project around to different uh, distributors. Um, Now, Wizard of Oz was at the top of their list of something to do. And they initially 
they initially titled it the Black Wizard of Oz. That's what it was going to be called. The Black Wizard of Oz wanted that pop score, wanted to make it as far away from Judy Garland and want anything to do with MGM. Also, because they would get into issues with MGM licensing and all that. They wanted to stay away, go back to Baum's book in public domain and go from there. Do we know, is there, is there any, um, any further details of like why specifically the Wizard of Oz? Or was that just one of their ideas that they were like, let's, this is well known. Let's use this. Here's some other ideas they had. That's <laughs> the top of their list. That's all we know. That's, that's kind all of, okay. that's all, here's some other things. Peter Pan was Diana Ross. <gasps> Wait, as, as Peter Pan? Yeah. Um, they wanted to do a special with the Strauss Adams musical Golden Boy with Sammy Davis Jr. Shirley Bassey, Vivian Reed, and Johnny Brown. They wanted this would have been this Peter Pan with Diana Ross would have been the Charlotte Lee musical version of it. Um, Sammy Davis Jr. They wanted as Captain Hook in that. Flip Wilson they wanted in that. Also some other possibilities would have been Goldilocks, Can Can, Walking Happy, Anything Goes with an all-black cast. Also, I need to presence this. Hello Dolly just did an all-black cast with yeah. Pearl Bales. Yes, yes, yes. But nothing had started with being we're an all black cast from the get go. Dolly started with Carol Chan. My favorite, my soul. Also, some other ideas. Girl Crazy was on this list, which is a Judy Garland movie with Mickey Rooney. Um, Kiss Me Kate, Mame, Oliver, Pal Joey, Porgy and Bess, they wanted to put into this. The Three Penny Opera, House of Flowers, Carmen Jones. They had, it was a bunch of different classic stories from the canon of classic stories and musicals. Television special. Just a reminder. And with Diana Ross, I'm I'm done. We haven't even said Broadway yet. Television. Wow, wow, wow. They really wanted Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson. Do you know who they are? No, no. I'm going to give you a hint. Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no mountain high. Yeah, that is one of the best songs of all time. (laughs) That that's them. They wanted them. They also wanted Harry Nilsson. He was a film composer, pop composer, or Jimmy Webb. Um, They initially for casting wanted one of my favorites. I'm going to sing this and see if you know. Okay. Um, I got love, 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 love. Ah! <laughs> Is it hair? No, it's from Pearly. Do you know who I'm doing? She won the Tony for it. Oh my gosh, no. Tell me. No, who is it? Melba Moore. Montclair State University oh. graduate. Melba Moore. But Melba Moore was in the original cast of Hair M. So you're, you're not too- Oh, good. I was wondering. I was like, wait, hmm. Melba Moore. They yes! wanted initially. They wanted Flip Wilson as the lion, Pearl Bailey as the Wicked Witch. Stop, stop, stop. As the Scarecrow. Lena Horne was always the initial idea for a good witch. Praise. Bill it's- Cosby, welcome back. As the- um, but this was just like, this was their ideas. There were no pitches to actors. <laughs> this was just an idea. So in August 1971, they started doing proposals and going out to TV producers. Um, And they were pitching it as like what West Side Story did with Romeo and Juliet. That's what we're going to do with The Wizard of Oz. We're going to completely 
different and it's going to make you 10 million bucks. They kept putting like wizardry words to it to get people into this because it really was such a precious seed. They did not have it fully developed at all. They just needed funding. It's kind of, this is what's so tricky about art. You need money to fund your, your art, but you have to come at it with like, almost like I've done all the work without being paid. My gosh, it's Um, a never ending cycle. Yes. So that wasn't really going quite well. (laughs) And getting a cast was already, they were finding some problems. Like Pearl Bailey was already saying like, no, I'm not, I'm not free. Um, Pearl. But they decided maybe this piece that we're going to do, whatever this is going to be, it's not going to be a cast of stars. It's going to be a star maker instead. So they were like, cool. And you know what? They can get actors for cheaper. So they're like, okay, cool, cool, cool. So they start shifting ideas a little bit there. Um, And they want to air this thing in the 1972 season. um, And they were going at it with an energy of like, no one is going to tell us no. But... They were badgered in rejection, just badgered in rejection from every television network you can imagine. This was the time of television specials. Um, And there were a lot of train wrecks within them, too, like ones that were just completely failing and no one really wanted to take a risk. Like this was the time of the Brady Bunch variety hour, like all these kinds of television specials were happening. Um, Everyone had a variety hour, so no one wanted to start something new. Um, they wanted to trust what was old type of a thing. Like the Brady Bunch made more sense than an all black Wizard of Oz at this moment to a lot of white, let's presence it, mm-hmm. white producers. So TV was just becoming a no. And this is when they would dump all the other stories. So goodbye, Goldilocks. Goodbye, Peter Pan with Diana Ross. Oh man, bring that back. Okay. Wizard of Oz, let's stick with this. Let's make it a Broadway musical. Let's just switch mediums. Wow. But they didn't think they had anything to lose. Um, and black representation on Broadway was not really a thing. Like I said, there was this David Merrick, Hello Dolly, that was an all black cast of replacement actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they also didn't like the stories that were being told of black folks. Like Pearly was a big success. I just presenced, I got love from, but it was about poor conniving people hoping to steal money. So there's, and like the jive language being how black people speak and just all this stuff that they were like, "Mm, we can do better. And also the fact that Rogers and Hammerstein musicals were dying. There was this void being left to fill and why can't a Motown sound wander its way onto Broadway? So they start asking for Broadway investors. They start pitching to any corporation or investor that has names, (laughs) that has a name to see if they could get this thing going. Most companies were like, heck no. Hmm. For instance, Xerox and General Foods were two of the ones they pitched to. No. It was turning out that Broadway felt just as hard of a schlep as television felt. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michael started to kind of peel away. Michael Brown was like, ah, I just don't see this thing getting made. So he kept working on other things. But Ken Harper really stayed determined in all of this. And this is what changes everything. This is where everything changes. In the summer of 1972, Ken is just walking down Third Avenue in New York City and he runs into Jeffrey Holder. Do you know who Jeffrey Holder is? 
Who's Jeffrey Holder? Have you seen the 1982 Annie film? Have I seen it? He is Punjab in that film. No way! Another kind of fun reference that is just, I feel like, ingrained in our pop culture world. Oh, Um, yes. He is... I'm just going to read this because Jeffrey Holder is very important. So this is straight from the How the Wiz Was book. Jeffrey had been... Jeffrey had been born and raised in Trinidad and taught dance and painting by his brother, Bosco. He managed Bosco's dance company for a while until legendary Broadway choreographer Agnes DeMille saw the company perform in the Virgin Islands. Jackpot when she suggested they take the company to New York. On money raised from Holder selling his paintings, that's his brother and him, the company hoofed it to New York City in 1954 to perform. While in New York, Holder was cast in the musical House of Flowers on Broadway. And this is, of course, where Michael Brown, that's a little crossover. He wrote material for House of Flowers. Following that show, Holder worked mostly in dance, performing at the Metropolitan Opera while continuing to work with his own company. On Broadway, he appeared with Josephine Baker, such a huge influence in his work, um, and acted in several plays. Beginning in the 1960s, he started appearing in films including All Night Long and the James Bond film, Live and Let Die, in what may be the freakiest makeup job next to Darth Maul, it says here. I don't know James Bond. I kind Am knows this. I kind of have a thing. I'm like, too much misogyny? Too many stereotypical tropes I do not need to watch. So I kind of, I have no idea. I was in the middle of a, a spousal debate between you and Patrick. <laughs> to watch, and I'm you like, said, after- M, come watch them with me. And you were like, M, don't you don't dare. Do <laughs> don't do it. Um, you know, I also, I get it. I get, uh, the music's great. I'll give, I'll give James Bond their music. Um, yes. But everything else is problematic. Later, he would direct, choreograph, and design the all-black rethinking of the musical Kismet called Timbuktu. On film, Holder would go on to appear as Punjab in the film version of Annie and narrate the 2005 film Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He also was so known at this time for his 7-Up commercials, which I will put on the Instagram. Because this man can sell a 7-Up, let me tell you. He can sell a 7-Up. That is great. He was... Very flamboyant in his pre- like in ha- his presentation, like marvelous was how he spoke, rich low voice. Yes, and people were just so enchanted by him. Um, and he was another like social butterfly. Um, and here's what's crazy: so they run into each other on the streets. They do not know each other, but Jeffrey Holder, our Seven Up, marvelous. He thinks he knows Ken. He thinks Ken is this producer of a show he did. Like, it's just a miscon- like a misconception in his head. And he goes, oh, you, you should come over and have dinner. He thinks he's someone that can help him with whatever he's working on. So it's just crazy. It, it, it's just crazy how this happens. It's totally a confusion of sorts. Wow. Um, this is what it is. Jeffrey thought that Ken was a producer that he had met in Paris recently and started talking to him as if he were that producer guy. Oh my god. And Jeffrey was totally unaware that Ken was a stranger. So then they had dinner together at Jim Downey's. I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> you know. Then, like, at the dinner, the jig would be up because Ken was like, I, I'm not this person. But like wanted to talk, talk to him more about this Wizard of Oz project. And Jeffrey was actually really interested in this Wizard of Oz project. He thought it would be really, really cool. And like I said, like Jeffrey had lots of Broadway credits, had 
a bit of a rapport in the community, which is great. Like Truman Capote, he worked with George Balanchine, Agnes Mill again. Okay. He also, okay. This is really, really cool. They had an idea together. I love this idea. He wanted Josephine Baker in right away. Like that was like one of the first ideas, Josephine Baker, get her in. So Ken had wanted to make the bad, which is beautiful. And the good, which is ugly. That was an oh, initial oh, flipping it on its head. Yes. And so they told Josephine this idea and they wanted her to be, um, I think a bad witch from what I'm guessing. I think they want to, um, they, I think pitched it as a glamorous, exotic, beguiling creature. Um, they told her that they hoped rehearsals would begin in March 73 and she would ask for a script and they would be like, uh, like they didn't have a script. So no producing money yet. So, you know, it's just like they didn't have anything to kind of get these initial people that they wanted. This stirs up some drama and some buzz. So Ken has a friend, Ken Harper has a friend that works on the New Yorker, on the New York Post's gossip column, page six. <laughs> so he knows if he puts something in there and just says, this project, this new Wizard of Oz project has Josephine Baker attached or interested in playing the Wicked Witch in this new Wizard of Oz project. Um, especially because she was being courted by David Merrick to replace Per Bailey in Hello Dolly, that they can like stir up a little, like drum up their own excitement based off of nothing, just drumming up something, you know, coming out, coming out of nowhere. Uh-huh. Um, so they do that. <laughs> um, they also sent out another press release announcing the show for the 1973-74 Broadway season. They share what the budget is. They say that they're trying to get Butterfly McQueen and Jeffrey Holder. They want Jeffrey to our, our Punjab friend to play the wizard, um, which he didn't want to play, but they put that in the papers anyway. And of course, Butterfly McQueen has a lot of fame for from Gone with the Wind. Um, yes. so they want her as a good witch initially. Um, this is all happening in August 1972. They're thinking Moms Mabley can play opposite of Josephine Baker. Um, she could play Glinda. They wanted Ben Vereen for the wizard. Oh. Ben was hot. Hot shot. Yes. They would drop off outlines of the show for him at the Imperial Theater to like quote wow. him um, to wow. possibly do the whiz after Pippin. Um, wow. Of course, Ben Vereen would not do the whiz, but he would play the wizard in Wicket later down the line. Um <laughs> Shirley Basie was another, she's a singer, was mentioned as another possibility for the Wicked Witch. Um, they talked to her when it was a television project, but she kind of, it doesn't feel like the interest was too dire. Um, they still had Melba Moore as top for Dorothy and a few other folks just in the backgrounds of their brain. So now the next thing they wanted to do was find a director. They were looking at Donald McHale who did Raisin, Golden Boy, I Am Solomon, and Sophisticated Ladies later on. They wanted him to see a script, but he was busy because he was working on the Bill Cosby show. Um, Wow. So now. But he had a vision. He did write notes back to Ken that are really interesting. He wanted um, the tornado. (laughs) This is very specific. 
to be an effect that had that was projected on a scrim with a film sequence showing the heads of Dorothy, Uncle Henry, and Aunt Em appearing in the eye of the storm. That was very important for him. Yeah. Also, uh, they had Gilbert Moses III, who won a Tony for directing Ain't Supposed It to Die a Natural Death. On the list, they had Ron Field, who... On, on their list, who... Um, was attached to Applause, Cabaret, Zorba, and later Merrily We Roll Along for possibly doing both direction and choreography. Martin Sharnan. Do you know him, Em? Martin! Wasn't he Annie? Yeah, Annie. Yeah. He was on their list of people wow. to potentially direct this piece. Also, they wanted to get a script going because that was a major issue, was not having a script <laughs> to pitch people. So... <laughs> Put in touch with um, Michael actually put Ken in touch with William F. Brown, thinking that Bill, as he was known, would be a great librettist. Mm. Now, he's the second Brown to enter this world. We have Michael Brown, who was first. Now we have Bill Brown. Um, he got behind his typewriter immediately and started making some sample scenes for them. Um, wow. It was pretty straightforward. It was totally like a first crack at it. And it was not good right out of the gate. Um, and he, let's presence this too, he was a white man working, going to be working with an all-black cast. So there's that too. So, but he just got a couple scenes out and they started get, getting to work on the script. Now, just a little bit about William F. Brown. He was a pretty successful play, playwright. He went to Princeton for electrical engineering and then also studied theater and minority studies. That's what it. What I'm guessing, like having any kind of education wow. in anything other than white people was right. called. Right. Um, he served in the Korean War. He wrote sketches in the 1960s for nightclubs like Michael Brown. He had a play on Broadway that was actually, I believe, Burnett Peters' first credit called The Girl and the Freudian Slip in 1967. I think she may have been an understudy on that. He contributed to some of the New Faces reviews. Yeah, so he was he just like was writing all the time. He had a boatload of TV shows um, from That Was the Week That Was, The Jackie Gleason Show, Love American Style, a lot of Max Liebman specials. So lots of humorful writing and lots of contribute contribute contributions to magazines he even had a syndicated comic strip called mixed singles in 1975 so this guy another hustler hustler that's one thing i'm going to note here yeah These people hustled they like, were not messing around not messing around hustle 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 so they have they have bill brown on the, on the script now let's talk about music now this is really interesting em they wanted to have an army of musicians on on this, uh, an army of composers writing the music for this Wizard of Oz project, which is kind of the trend we're in right now. Like I'm thinking of SpongeBob. Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Yeah, that's kind of a trend we're seeing come back. Um, like I said, they want they had a couple of composers in mind. So they got a, a couple people on board. So Clifton Davis would write several songs back to Harper when he pitched it to him. Billy Jackson who um he wrote ronnie dyson's if you let me make you if you let me make love to you then why can't i touch you 
Um, what? I don't. That, I think we need to play that to end our episode. We're gonna find that. And play it. That'll well, end. It. The title itself is confusing. We're gonna listen to that. So everyone, hang on. That's where we're get going. ready. That's where we're going. That will probably be in part two. So know that we're gonna bring that one back. <laughs> that good old gem. He also wrote so much in love. That sounds nicer. And then they also reached out to Coolidge, Taylor Perkinson, and Bob Kessler, who scored the films, who scored the film The McMasters, Luther Vandross, who would get a song <laughs> in his, of course, Lee Sarkis, and others. Um, most of these songs never really made it anywhere. No one even like has seen them since. Like no one really knows what they were. Um, and so in walks Charlie Smalls, um, who would become the main composer of The Wiz. Accidental meeting, again, for Ken. Accidental meeting. He was working on another project of a friend's and just ran into Charlie, and he was obsessed with him. What is crazy is that Charlie would go on writing and working on this unknown Black Wizard of Oz project for almost a half of a year maybe even more than half of a year without getting paid, which is wow. Um, but they were very impressed with his work. He was a huge bundle of talent. He was giving piano lessons by the time he was five years old. What? Full prodigy. Full he was scholar. a prodigy. Um, if you ask, okay. I think this is when I saw Sondheim in concert. Uh, I'm sorry. Sondheim in conversation at Lincoln Center way back when, when I was in college, they asked him, like, what composer would you like to meet and sit down with? And he says Charlie Smalls. Wow. Charlie Smalls. Because Charlie would actually end up dying relatively young. We'll talk about that later. Um, The Wiz would be his biggest body of known work that has lived on. Mm. Um, He had a scholarship from the Henry Street Settlement and went to Juilliard when he was 11. Graduated in 1961, went to the high school performing arts. He mastered drums, organ, harpsichord, guitar, and bass. Um, he worked as a pianist with the New York Jazz Repertory Company, toured with Hugh Masakella, Harry Belafonte, Esther Morrow. Um, he went into the Air Force. He played for the Air Force Band. He wrote A Christmas Carol for Caroline Kennedy. Just all these gigs. Um he went to Juilliard and then went to high school. Am I hearing that right? Yes, that's correct. That's crazy. Private student. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's insane. He was the music director of several New York clubs. He wrote for the Monkees. Wow. Um, when he would appear on TV, so many things. Like he's that's all amazing. Um, I've definitely heard his name before, but I'm sad to say I haven't heard a lot of his music, except so the. Then- they, they're loving Charlie. They have him on board and they start pitching to theaters to possibly get like an out of town tryout. Um, they got so many rejections, but it's funny because some of these places that rejected them, like the Los Angeles Civic Light Opera would be begging them to come and to perform there later down the line. But of course, like everyone, there was a lot of just like, oh God, why are you trying to do the MGM movie? Like that was kind of a generic response. Like loves the MGM movie. No one wants to see this. Like that was a generic response that they were getting, but they, they persevered on, especially Ken. And Ken was also just wizardry again, being like, we have cool merchandise we can sell with this. We can do yes. cereal. 
We could do fashion because everyone needs silver sequin shoes, honey. We could do dolls. <laughs> greeting cards we could do a possible film an animated cartoon wow. series this was like look at the world of the this wizard of oz project that we can have happen ken harper so, was was going ken for it harper. ken harper throwing ken. everything so by march 73 the first draft of the of a script is done um it was lacking of any kind of snappy fun dialogue it just was very dry from what I'm gathering. Drab, I think, was a word that was used to describe it. But here's something you'll love, Em. The witches' names were all different. The Good Witch of the North was named Azella. Azella! The Wicked Witch of the East is named Erlene, which would be even mean later on. And the Wicked Witch of the West was called Nettie. Not no no Nanette. Oh, my favorite. <laughs> um, but of course, they would change her name to Yvette first. Yvette. Yvette. And then in the second draft um the wow. only two songs from this draft that made it into the final version were everybody rejoice by luther vandross and if you believe there were only two and that wasn't even in by charlie smalls yet that's it wow wouldn't you just like die to hear those songs that were there i mean i'm just curious curious too there was so much stumbling yeah yeah <laughs> on this so yeah it's just like they're still hitting so many dead ends with corporations um and you know jeffrey holder um who is fabulous seven up he knows that he is away with white folks so he starts attending some meetings to be like marvelous and like offer his energy that people just loved uh, especially white people he was a he was a bridge that could be in these meetings and start calming down the old rich white guys and starts having them see financial potential in this so he started attending some of these meetings would start it to help but nothing they they probably i would be curious to see how many meetings they had because the no pile would probably hit a sky a sky rise level for how many no's they received because it was a huge risk at the time to do something with a, a, a whole black cast. Huge risk. Um, a lot of other feedback they would get, it's too risky to mess around with an iconic story. A lot of black-owned businesses at the time were not doing well. Too mm -hmm. high of a risk again. There would be some lukewarm interest. In, like they, they would get like little things that kind of gave them hope. Nothing's turned into yes, but it gave them hope. Like Ra Radio City was like, oh, this sounds really cool but we can't this season type of a thing but they were interested same thing with um the african-american international development Incorporation. same thing with abc would they wanted to see something further down the line mca was also interested so there was just like lukewarm interest but still nothing was clicking and ken harper would just keep releasing things like he didn't care he just kept going i, love ken. I want to be more like ken let's um Let's just keep saying this is happening. Let's just keep telling people Melvin Moore is Dorothy. Let's talk about Josephine, going to be the Wicked Witch. Um, let's talk about Butterfly McQueen. It's wow. so crazy that he just was going off of nothing. Yeah. No one was even signed. Not everyone was even interested in being in the show. And even Jeffrey Holder, who is helping cultivate this, they were saying he was going to be the wizard. He's like, I don't want to play the wizard. So, like, even that was just... Oh, my gosh. Like, I'd rather play the Wicked Witch. Uh, please do. 
No, it's so, such a testament to like, just keep persevering and like not forcing people, but being like, I'm not shutting up and you're going to come on this train with me. And people do. People respond to that sometimes. Okay. So the Wiz is going to get another resurgence. So Ken Harper is going to do what everyone should do when they're in a pickle is go to Fire Island and relax. So he That's goes to Fire Island and he's on the beach one day. He's just hanging out. Um, apparently mixing some vodka stingers <laughs> and just letting go of all of his cares because he was very stressed out. Mm-hmm. And he ends up striking up a conversation with someone named Herbert Honig, who is an author who had friends in high places as Jeremy and how the Wiz was describes him an author who has friends in high places. So Herb is going to get some stuff done now with this Oz project. So, cause he turned out to be good friends with John Pollock, who was on the board of entering now into the scene, 20th century Fox. Okay. Big deal. Um, he's, also, he's also the president of another company. Um, but this is a big league. This is the big leagues. 20th century Fox can provide this Wizard of Oz project, the money they need. Okay. So Ken immediately invites Herb, Herb, come on over to a bad And Herb loved it. Herb loved, 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 loved it. So it was instantly hooked. And he starts to drum this up to John Pollock, the guy at 20th Century Fox. And he, he also creates some wizardry that doesn't really exist. A continuous theme that we're noticing here. He says that Columbia Records is interested in this. We should jump on this before they do. Columbia Records was not interested in this. That is nice. Um, but you know, it doesn't. What someone doesn't know sometimes doesn't hurt them. It, it helps push Fox to be like, oh, we should get our hands on this property. Mm-hmm. So then. Papers are running things that Fox is going to buy the film rights. And also, this is when the title starts to take a change as the second draft is finishing up in October 1973. It goes from The Black Wizard of Oz to The Wiz of Oz. Jeffrey Holder saying that he takes the credit on that, saying that Wiz just sounded better and also quote it here sounding more black than wizard, which is an interesting phrase. Um, but this is, in the second draft, it got more sassy, more modern, um, still a bit rough around the edges, but it's starting to find its voice. Also, they forgot, though, to write the Kansas scene. That still hasn't happened yet, which is just hilarious. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> the score is also starting to get cleared on up and is only crediting Charlie Smalls, Freddie Scott, Perkinson and Kessler and Luther Vandross. And then the sure. in the final draft, the only person besides Charlie Smalls would be Luther Vandross, who would actually get credit mm-hmm. for Everybody Rejoice. So now backers auditions are still going strong, but it's still missing something. People are still so hung up on MGM. It's dominating their minds. They cannot see The Wizard of Oz in any other shape or form, especially, again, white producers. So this is where something changes that I think is really cool. This is all on Jeffrey Holder, our 7-Up commercial Punjab from Annie Man. This is all on him. As He wanted to give a visual to the 
producers that they were going to. Um, and this is what inspired the visual. There was a photo spread in Life magazine of Muhammad Ali at Madison Square Garden. And in these photos, his entourage was ready to to take the town. They're wearing the most awesome 70s clothing from fur coats to men's heels. And they have fros. Um, it's glamorous and edgy, attitude films. Um, and it just looks so super cool. And Jeffrey pulls a lot of inspiration from this and the fact that this is starting to become a trend in 1970s New York um, and starts to put that spin onto the world of Oz, adding this glamour to it. Like, what if all the male characters could look like Muhammad Ali's gang? Like, the lion could have a fur tuxedo coat. Um, the scarecrow could have this Ben Vereen kind of a look. Um, the Tin Man could be made of urban junk with a garbage can torso, maybe a skillet as his hat, um, and a part of his leg could be a Miller High Life can. Like, just starting to embody a little bit more of what was really popping in culture at the time. Um, so the vision is starting to take form. This is something they didn't really have. They just had kind of buzzwords, which only can get you so far, right? So they're starting to get this vision and people are really drawn to it. So now it's time for Ken and Charlie. So Harper, Ken Harper producer, Charlie Small's composer to go to LA and give the big old presentation to 20th Century Fox. They're definitely interested. They have support. So it's looking really good, but they really need to wow everyone. And this is where it gets really, really fun. I'll just say this. The Fox suits were salvating. Charlie oh, Small oh. would later say after the presentation, I knew we had them when nine grown men cried when I sang home. Oh my gosh. Stop. It's just so cool. And they were really digging the fa fact that this music sounded like Billboard mm. chart hits rather than musical theater. Um, like, why can't the sound be in musicals was a really cool question that they were excited to um, answer. Also, Ken was doing a bang up job with being like, look at all the merchandising, look at all the potential that's going to happen. Like, just, just consistently selling it. So they got their sugar daddy in Fox. It was nailed. Oh, they got Fox. It. I also wanted to, that made me remember Hair was on Broadway in 1968, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And Hair, the music that was in Hair kind of also exploded like what the sound of Broadway and musical theater could be. So just presencing like that sort of came a little bit before this. And I think that thread line is continuing of people getting excited about yes. different styles of music being on Broadway. Yes. Hair was a huge, huge. Blew everything up on Broadway yeah. kind of like what Rent did for our generation growing up mm -hmm. here totally took Broadway to a different level thank yeah. you for presencing here um they also decided to get another producer involved named Emmanuel Asenberg um he had been a producer and manager since the 60s he worked on the Lion in winter the sunshine boys ain't misbehaving they're playing our song Jerome Robbins, Broadway, all these shows. He would do Moving Out later on. Like, he has so many credits. They wanted to have a Broadway ready to go producer because Ken is in new territory and there are sharks on Broadway. And if you're just going to be a little tiny fish, you're going to get eaten. So they wanted to give Ken some support. So they got Emmanuel involved as well. And they got 650K from 20th Century Fox. Get it. Okay. 
And this was all before they even had any Broadway opening date set. Insane. That's amazing. So they're all hoping the show is going to go to New York in December 1974. That is now the hope. Mm-hmm. They're wanting Jeffrey Holder to be the director and to choreograph and design the show. That is what's being asked to Jeffrey, which... That's a lot. Like, a lot for That's one person. Um, and also, they're like, can you play the wizard, too? Like, they're adding all oh this Holder's plate, which is insane. Jeffrey, do it all. A lot of the 20th Century Fox people wanted him because of his um, national commercial feature with, or I don't even, I might have been even global. I don't even know. This commercial had far reach. The 7-Up commercial campaign he did was huge. He also had played a Bond um, character that was very popular, but Jeffrey didn't want to play another kind of tropey character also. Like, he was not really for that, bringing that into the world of the Wiz. He... Like we said before, he's like, I'd rather play the Wicked Witch. I have no interest in doing this. But he was he was something I think that everyone was enchanted by and just wanted him to do everything. So a lot was getting put on Jeffrey Holder's story. Um, and this is like when all the paperwork is starting. But Jeffrey wasn't interested in being on stage. But he just said, I think right away, he said, I will start with costume design. So that's where he's, he starts he starts strumming up a design. Then they get a director, and his name is Gilbert Moses, and he co-founded the Free Southern Theater Company and became an important pioneer in the world of Black theater. Um, He would direct the 1974 film Willie Dynamite and also wrote music and lyrics for it. He had a ton of stuff off Broadway. In 1972-73, he was named Most Promising Director by the Drama Desk Awards. Um, He had directed Ain't Supposed to Die, A Natural Death on Broadway and received a Tony nomination. Um, And yeah, he just had tons of credits. Very exciting to get him on board to be the director. So like I said, Gilbert came from the Black Theater. And that musical that he won a Tony for directing, Ain't Supposed to Die, A Natural Death, was a musical that was about Black street life. so he wanted to offer that to the Wiz. Um, and Jeffrey would balance them by adding style and glamour. Now, this is noted in this history book. Jeffrey may w- Jeffrey was Black um, in the sense of his race, but he wasn't um, an African-American. He was British West Indian Black. And that is a huge difference mm-hmm. to being an African-American. Um, that's something that's just noted here that I think is important to presence. You have Jeffrey's style that comes from a different world. And you have um, now Gilbert Moses, who is really heavily involved in the American Black theater scene. Yeah. Their visions are starting to mesh. This is when they started to bring George Faison on as choreographer to have more support as well. Also, Charlie Smalls is officially hired as the composer because he wasn't officially hired just yet. Charlie! For free for almost a year, which is insane. Crazy. George Faison also, George Faison also has a long career as a dancer choreographer. He had danced on Broadway and Pearly, choreographed Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which I think is the name of post-pandemic musical The year. The name of the year. I Can't Cope. Um, Uh, Dance with Alvin Ailey. He had his own group, the George Faison Universal Dance Experience in 1971. Debbie Allen was a part of that. It's just like, uh, "Ah, these people's careers are just 
Absolutely insane. insane. So more people are starting to come on in. There's the designers are getting added in like Tom H. John, Harold Wheeler, and Theron Musser. So just more names coming into the project to join the creative team. Wow. I think Tom John, what a great name. Tom John is the one that suggests that the Yellow Brick Road should be played by four dancers with long walking sticks to serve as footmen for Dorothy. Yes. The Tin Men and Lion. So Jeffrey goes off and designs Yellow Brick Road dancer costumes that have yellow tailcoats and long trains and yellow afros. Um, later, he would change it so that the dancers drape the trains over their arms um, since they kept tripping over them, which would make this cool and dapper energy, which is so fun. Um, for the Wicked Witch, Jeffrey was thinking of putting an actress in an oversized yellow robe, fit it with umbrella spokes. So when the time came for Dorothy to throw water on her and to melt, she was lowered through a trapdoor in the stage, causing the spokes to splay outward, which would flatten the robe to the floor, which would leave only the robe and her umbrella-shaped headdress. So that would be kind of a fun visual. Oh, wow, I love see. that. They have the crow's heads were um, coming together with caps with beaks and upturned collars. Poppies became women in tight-fitting costumes with petals as their skirts. The monkeys were initially dancers dressed in black feathers and skull-like makeup. So things are, like, again, just really starting to come together. Munchkinland, they went back to the book and they made everything in blue initially. Um, Big, large blue hoop skirts. Um, and with actors seated on rolling piano stools to lower their height. <laughs> so fun. So, That's so fun. Okay. They wanted the witches scenes to be heavily using red, Glinda to keep the pink color. There was a lot of conflicting ideas with how to do the tornado sequence at first. Um, Jeffrey was really inspired by this painting, Tornado Over Kansas by John Stork Curry. Um he really loved this painting and wanted to emulate that, but there was a lot of conflicting ways of how to do the tornado. He wanted, George wanted to do an ominous ballet with heavy music and a dancer to play the twister, but Jeffrey would kind of fight against that. And then it'd be something that would go back and forth for quite some time in the creative process. But of course, George would win out and Jeffrey would end up designing a huge black robe for the dancer Auditions are starting to get scheduled. So now welcome some actors. So back in March, this is March of 1974. um, Even before auditions are even scheduled, reps for 15-year-old singer Stephanie Mills were pouncing on the opportunity for her. They sent... um, they sent everyone a test pressing of Mills' first single from Paramount Records and included color transparencies, which I don't even know what those are. I think I was like, are those headshots? What are those? Um, um, we'll get it right, Tara and MK, I'm sure. Right. Um, the single was apparently so, so cool that it just shot her to the shortlist for Dorothy. So she, that was something that was really cool. Um they're starting to court other actors. Eartha Kitt is in this list. Godfrey Cambridge, uh-huh. ben, like we said before, Sammy Davis Jr., Carl Anderson, um, Nipsey Russell. And of course, Nipsey Russell and Lena Horne eventually would be used in the film. The reason that the cast would end up being a lot of 
newcomers and a lot of lesser known talents was that scheduling just kept getting in the way for the big stars that they were wanting. So the auditions began in May 1974. Stephanie Mills auditioned, Hinton Battle auditioned then, D.D. Bridgewater auditioned then, Maple King, Tiger Haynes, and Andre DeShields. Andre! Andre, recent Tony Award winner. Love. Love. The big, the big thing that is really cool to start tracking here is Hinton Battle. He was 18 years old. Um, and he was initially just going in for the ensemble. He had studied in the ballet program at Juilliard. He was only getting roughly around $200 a month from them for expenses. Um, and he knew he needed to start putting himself out there for work because he needed to survive. Um, so this is why he decided to audition for the show. They were also in a place where they were looking at cover songs. Like they're like, who can make these songs hits? So they were looking uh, like Bette Midler singing He's the Wiz. <laughs> stop. Excuse me? Um, Ray Charles singing I Was Born on the Day Before Yesterday. James Brown singing Slide Some Oil to Me. Barbara Streisand singing Be a Lion. These are just some of them. Um, the Staple Singers singing You Can't Win. Ike and Tina Turner singing Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News. Mm-hmm. Johnny Mathis on Don't Cry Girl song that is cut diana ross entering the picture for the first time on who do you think you are another cut song um gladys knight and the pips on that and then thinking about shirley bassey barbara streisand roberta flack and diana ross to be the ones to cover home i i'm aghast m space right now as a dog It took about seven months for the whole entire casting process to be completed and finished. Wow. I mean, those are some heavy hitting names for sure. And in June, while this was happening, the Wiz of Oz would then be shortened to the Wiz. And then the producers would change everything to um, making a limited partnership called the Wiz Company. And that's when the papers were filed, whereas in June 1974... Their only sole limited partner was Cinemascope Productions, which was a part of 20th Century Fox. And now it was all about finding where they were going to do the out-of-town tryout, which was really, really hard as well. Because people, again, were hitting them back with the same stuff of like, we don't want this new Wizard of Oz. You know, they know, like Kennedy Center wrote back saying they weren't interested and it would be difficult to top the 1939 movie. Um uh-huh. But if it tour, like if it goes to a tour, we'll take it. Like they're like, go make it a success somewhere else, and then we'll take it. it. Um, they want Stephanie Mills in in July, and they're getting contracts out to her. Um, there was some hesitation with her people. Um, they weren't quite ready to. Her record company was a little concerned about her taking on this role. Hmm. Um, but she got a deal that would say she will be on the cast album for the Wiz, no matter what. So they okay. let the, they let this all happen. So there was some hesitancy with Stephanie Mills' people, and she would get a really sweet deal out of it when she did sign. Um, this is something that I think is really cool. Em, that you're gonna die. Here was what her contract said. Oh no. Okay. 
In addition to performing in the show itself and the cast album, management had the option to have her appear in the film version within three years of the official Broadway opening. The film would pay her $25,000. They also had the right to option her for one year after the close of the Broadway production. Downside was that she could never sing Over the Rainbow in public. What? She cannot sing Over the Rainbow in public. What? I don't know if this still exists. Like if ever? We need to talk about this. Like ever in her life? I mean, it makes sense. They want her to have home be her song. <gasps> I it's would like Pepsi and Coke commercials. You can't do a Pepsi commercial and then, and then right. go, hey, Coke, that, I'm available. You can't do that. That is stabbing my heart because that's like over the rainbow is my heart. If someone was like, you can't, can't sing, sing ever again. But if they were like, we wrote this really cool yeah. other song. I mean, that is very cool. <laughs> that is very cool as well. That's a hard one. I just haven't really, that's so, I mean, it makes sense, right? Of like, or even what Walt Disney did to Adriana of like, your voice needs to be associated with this. Yeah. Disney and that was totally That makes sense. But it's so interesting. Like, you can't sing this song. It's an old school move. Very it's, old school. Yeah, old school move. Okay, here's a few casting considerations I just want to share with you and like why they didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Did not book. These are the high profile people they wanted. Okay. That you might recognize. Bill Cosby. It says here, not, not yet. Had a film set for September. Sammy Davis Jr., just not available for the entire year of 1974. <laughs> Red Fox. He's busy with Sanford and Sons. Mm -hmm. Lena Horne. Not interested. Busy with Las Vegas concerts. <laughs> uh, Odetta. Sent script. That's all it says. So you're like, back. <laughs> Never responded. Ben Vereen. Unavailable because of schedule of personal appearances. Not interested in another Broadway show at this time. He's done. He needs a rest. Here's my favorite. Eartha Kitt. Didn't return six phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I love that they wrote the exact That's number. Great. I, I mean, I, I love tried. to document it. It's just so great. Six phone calls. She said no. She said, I'm not answering. I'm not I'm picking not up. Gonna answer. Maybe they had the wrong phone number. Have we ever? Yeah, maybe her phone number changed. <laughs> Eartha. Okay, so the cast is formally announced in the New York Times in August. This is Stephanie Mills for Dorothy, Clarice yeah. Taylor for The Good Witch of the North, Mabel King for The Wicked Witch of the West, Andre DeShields as The Wiz. Woo! And they really were so excited about Andre's um, combination that he could offer of being this, like, young Adam Clayton Powell, who is the first Black congressman from New York. Hey. And a reverend, like a flamboyant minister with a large ministry that funded a sweet collection of mink-lined Rolls Royces and a few mansions. So, like, kind of, you know, that, like, dirty minister area. Like, of, money. Maybe he's using the money for himself, you know? <laughs> but they really were excited about him capturing the congressman and this hyped-up minister. Um, this That's is funny. funny. There was a little... No one really knows what happened here. Dolores Hall was initially announced as Glinda. Um, if you don't know who Dolores Hall is, she would later be the original Jewel in the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and sing the, the pants off of 24 Hours of Lovin'. But no one 
knows why this happened, like why the New York Times reported this. That's what's noted in this book. Um, how they got a hold of that tidbit. It, she never was a part of the list, but that was what was put in the paper. So that's just something to note that no one knows why that was there. Um, but D.D. Bridgewater, of course, would be the would be the choice for Glinda. She'd actually be one of the Tony Award winners for yeah. The Wayne's Line, which is very exciting. Yeah. Very small role to get a Tony Award with. So the casting is complete. There's only two songs right now that were not Charlie's. Um, Emerald City Ballet was by Timothy Grapenreed and George Faison. That's really fun that George Faison even has a hand in that. And Everybody Rejoice was by, of course, like we said, Luther Vandross. So the score is coming together. Um, they were gonna. There was a song, the Kessler and Coolridge Taylor Parkinson song, Believing, um, would be replaced with um, Small's song of If You Believe. Um, so everything of the other composers, that whole idea of having a hybrid of composers is starting to fade. It's basically just Charlie Smalls now with a few tiny other things. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a fox guy that noted in this book is he's the pooper. That's what they the noted. Pooper. His name is Gordon Stolberg. He had lots of opinions and was like, I don't want that. Like he was it one was of those no guy. Yeah, he didn't like Mean Old Lion, and he didn't like the song called Who Do You Think You Are, um, which would get cut eventually. Um, he also brought in this woman, Rhonda Gomez Quinones. I might be saying her name incorrect. I acknowledge that if I am. They're getting a lot of unhelpful advice. Just people being like, cut, like, but like, not anything, like, yeah, not anything like that can actually impact. Um, she hates the title. Like, she says it sounds like a, a, a household cleanser. <laughs> Which is like, what? <gasps> ah! Racist stuff in her notes, too. Just Ugh. like, yikes. Missing nitty gritty black dialogue. And it's just like, what do you mean? Just like, she wanted, she wanted like the jive talk. But again, like, that's Hollywood's and entertainment industries version way of showing black people. It's not right. authentic, it's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, she this is what's wild she they had this is the stuff they had to deal with okay this is what's wild she had notes about the witches suggesting that the wicked witch be cast white or a black performer in white face and didn't ne- see the need for glinda she thought the role could be com- combined with Ada Pearl, um and suggested ruth gordon who is white um Rhonda, what is happening? Rhonda, I'm confused about awesome. your ideas. So they were taking some of her notes. There were some that were like decent. Like she liked the preacher stuff with the wizard. Um, <laughs> but like they were getting so much of this. This is just like what they had to deal with That's all a the lot. time. Just yeah. one. That's a lot to deal with. Also, okay, going back to our book writer. This is really interesting. Um, who is white? Reminder. Um, he was having trouble connecting with the cast. The cast was kind of angry that he was the person mm-hmm. responsible for their dialogue. Um, like he, he would say that they would ask him like, how can you write this show? And he would be like, what do you mean? And then the performers would say, I mean, you're not black. <laughs> like, why are you writing the show? Which is like, yeah. yeah accurate. <laughs> um, but this did have him retreat and feel very, lonely bill brown because he just couldn't connect to the cast and they just gave him kind of like you know they didn't they 
were critical of him, as they should be. So there was no bridge yet. I mean, obviously, the bridge is, like, so wobbly that's being built here with The Wiz in terms of um, a Black musical is opening up in a the great white way. Emphasis on white, you know? And it there's no real bridge yet. So this is very interesting to see that this is what was existing. Um, later on, Bill would, I think create a better relationship with some of the cast members that is noted going forward, which is good. Um, but it is like, yeah, they should have hired someone else. That's it's what still, I think. Yeah. I, yeah. I Even mean, for the rewrites for the not 20, 2015 was, I don't think would happen now. Cause it's Harvey Feinstein. Who's a great writer, but, but another, another white person. Yeah. Like I, well, especially I th- if you have the actors saying like, we feel kind of weird about this. Like we're the ones who have to say the words, you know, we have to make this be authentic. Right. Coming from in us. The like, context of a musical that was the goal was to have like authentic dialogue. Right. Right. So, I know. So this is all going on at the same time. Um, bringing back Hint, Hint and Battle. They're really interested in this kid. I know I was talking about him earlier, this kid who tried out for the ensemble. Um, they really want to figure out how to use him more, maybe as an understudy feature, featured role or replacement. So there's like stuff like that is also happening. Again, just keep him in your mind. He's going to come back up. Um, and they also get the logo designed by Milton Glazer, who would be responsible later on for the I Love New York campaign that would be set in the later 70s to get New York to have a return of its glamour to get tourists back because like we were saying 1970s 70s New York was a bit peep show world and scary edges yeah yeah a little scary that's that's cool so he did that he did that logo okay now we're getting into the out-of-town tryouts there were three (laughs) tryouts first stop mechanic theater Baltimore. And I mean, this is where they worked on the mechanics, 100%. <laughs> yes, October 20th, 1974. Yes. Oh, I have the 21st. Interesting. Well, so just to share a bit from this same book, Broadway Musicals yes. by Peter Felicia. So the night before, I guess, because yes, I think you're right, the 21st. So, but October 20th, the director, Gilbert Moses III, comes yeah. out to make a pre-curtain speech, which is never a good sign. No, <laughs> he was technical difficulties times a million. He apologizes for the not yet ready show, noting that one actor has taken ill, another has been replaced, and there was no time for a technical rehearsal. Yikes. That's really scary. That's like a nightmare. That That's a nightmare. I think we've all been in not that to that extent, but that experience where the night before you're like, this is going wrong. That is you walking out in your underwear. Like that's what that feels like. It's literally a nightmare. The crowd was not optimistic. Moses sensed that. And he apparently crowed quote, but someday you'll brag that you were here this night. Good for him. I mean, like I believe in this (laughs) to be seen like in a on ready stage. Yeah, that 21st performance, the pr- that would be the premiere, and it was a success. People gave it a standing ovation, which, like, is noted in this book, and I think this is important. Standing O's were not a thing. Every show now you go to see on Broadway, everyone stands it, up. It's sort of built in, yeah. You know who hates that? You know who hates that more than anyone? 
third roommate, Patrick Roberts. Patrick. He yeah. hates that standing ovations are not like something you reserve for like, something that's extraordinary. Right. Yes. Like, does a deserved maybe or earned? We just stand up now, no matter what. Like I, I remember being like at this. You know, the share show was fun. But, like, everyone is on their feet. Like, you know, it's like Mamma Mia. Everyone's on their feet at the end. But it's like, these shows are fun. And then I don't know the show on your feet. I told you, get on your feet. <laughs> They're literally telling me to get on my feet. Like, I'm not <laughs> giving this to them as a standing out. But it got a standing out, which was, like, a huge confidence. That's huge for them. Um, it was not ready in any shape or form form especially for new york because they know like when they go to new york hating shows is a hobby for people and they will be destroyed so this is where they start to make a million changes at a fast and furious speed they were having some trouble with andre's character um it was losing his power and they were worried about andre's performance um they loved what the character was before. Maybe they lost some stuff in rehearsals. So they were trying to get whatever they found at the beginning back. Um, it's mostly the scene writing for him. This is when You Can't Win was cut. So You Can't Win, which would be oh. in the film version, it was cut. So people who saw the mechanic theater previews, they saw You Can't Win in Wow. In his proper. It was it was cut. Sometime during this run. And they were really disappointed because they were like, oh, my God, this is a pop song. Like, this is going to be such a cover. And now it's gone. But it couldn't it didn't fit. They were thinking of maybe making it a song that they. it was not a scare. It was not a Scarecrow song, by the way. Let me present that. It was not his song. That was not even a thought. Um, they were maybe thinking like, oh, the Emerald City citizens can sing it as Dorothy and and friends leave to find Eveline. Um, but Gilbert was like, no, it's just not working. And then. Uh, Bill wanted it to be reinstated at the top of Act 2, sung by the Winkies as a work song, and then No Bad News follow up with that. Um, so they tried to make it the Act 2 opener. It just uh, it was not going well. No Bad News was bad news at first. It wasn't working. <laughs> the monkeys weren't working. They had this funky monkey ballet. What? The monkeys danced, and danced this um, capture scene to get our four friends and Toto. Um, oh no, no Toto. We have to stop saying that. No Toto. I don't think Toto goes. Yeah. Bye <laughs> bye Toto. Sorry Toto. They said the music was very repetitive and the audience was getting bored. It was a visual feast though. That was the thing that was winning. People were like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever looked at. I've ever seen in my life. So that's where they were winning. Like it was a kind of a, a shit show, but a visual piece. I wanted to share from that preview the night before, just to further help us understand the shit show. Um, the night before, a few little moments. Apparently, when Dorothy arrives in Oz, she was told that she was talking to the Munchkins, and then she quote said, "But they're donuts." <laughs> that was a line. But they're donuts about the Munchkins. Why was that a line? Maybe because, like, are they thinking, like, munchkins, like, the actual, you know, when you go to Dunkin' oh, like Donuts? Dunkin' Donuts? Were Is they out yet? Like, but, they're, but they're donuts. Wait, I'm going to research Is that, that what this is referencing? Early 70s. 
Oh, oh my gosh. Munchkin's donut hole treats are early 70s. So she probably was like, oh, but you're not donut. That was like a pop culture reference. Well, apparently it did not go over well. Didn't go over well here either. So here's another line. When the Wicked Witch of the West, here named Eveline, played by Mabel King, said, a plague on both your houses, an underling cried, not my summer place too. Excellent. There was I would have laughed at that. I would laugh. My Hampton home. <laughs> home. There was a song called We Should Cover This. We should um find this. Okay. Which where? Which what? Which why? For oh, the good witch. Yeah. <laughs> You're named okay. after I yes, it does. They said it was awful. There was just a lot of that's what every every note in here is just like it was it really was bad. awful. They said Stu Gilman, who Stu Gilliam, who was the scarecrow, merely went through the motions. Butterfly McQueen as the queen of the field mice seemed somewhere between intoxicated and hung over. She may have been. She if probably was. was. <laughs> so just to further give a few examples of what was going on, but they still, but then the next night they got that standing O, as you said. They also had some issues with Stephanie's mom with costumes. Like Stephanie's mom had a really like, pure vision for her daughter always they wanted her to like transform into a tina turner-esque persona after everybody rejoiced and her mom wouldn't let that happen she never wanted her to be a nude colored unitard on stage um, how stephanie at this time she's 15 going on 16 15. she's a teen. yeah she's a baby wow. yeah um and she was initially supposed to even wear overalls at the beginning but uh jeffrey holder's design wanted her to have this Sunday church sweetness to her to be like in her Sunday best. So that's why the white dress got introduced. Um, wow. If you would say to her, like, no, you're a little girl in Kansas. You don't wear pants. You don't wear overalls. That was his vision on that, which is interesting. There was a lawsuit early on at the mechanic theater with some ticket debacles and like who owes who something. It feels like just Baltimore was like, Good morning, Baltimore. Like, it was just miserable for everybody. It was painstaking. Like, they had to make so many changes. And Gilbert Moses III is now in talks of being replaced. Yeah. And this is hard. Um, oh, there's also things like Charlie Smalls is playing piano every day for rehearsal. And they're like, you need to hire someone. It's not his job. That's like, not no, you need an accompanist. Like, he needs to be rewriting. He shouldn't be in this room playing. Like, he, like, there, it just was a mess. Because, again, a reminder, like, Ken Harper is new in this world. Like, he doesn't know what he's doing. And he's so many people looking at him. It's, it's crazy. So I give him, like, a lot of credit for doing this. But it's like, oh, man. Like, he was in over his head. Um, so they knew for the Detroit run, they had to fix the tornado. The show was way too long. They had to cut it. They wanted to rework Adderpearl to make her more of a scatterbrain. Um, like you said, that song, which where, which what, which why, would be cut. <laughs> um, I love that song. Home was initially doubled. It was sung at the top and at the end. Like, oh, wow. Kind of like we get a little sense of home in um, Soon As I Get Home when that song comes in. And I love The Wiz so much for this. I will always say this. I think it's so great that Dorothy's first song in the Wiz is her first time being by herself for the first time, really, where she's like, okay, I have to be the one who's reminding me of why I, I, I want to go home, why 
I'm here. What could this journey mean? Um, but it was home initially. And then there was, again, like kind of like over the rainbowy kind of conversations, like, no, we don't want to hear her sing. We want to get to ease on down the road. That's the hit. So like, what are we going to like, just kind of wanting to cancel out Dorothy's heart, which is like, no, we need that. It might be, I think it's always cringy to sit, sit through a ballad. I do. I think there's always a little part of us that needs, that will cringe during a ballad because it makes you have to sit with harder emotions, right? It's not as fun as ease on that, you know, like that's not going to do a swaying bop. You have to listen. So yeah. there's that, the, the Kalida battle that they had, they weren't sure how to do that. Um, they wanted to make like, maybe the Kalidas be like the Keystone cops. Um, they, the gatekeeper wasn't working. They wanted to change him from an uptight jerk to an arrogant cop. Poppies, they wanted to turn into hookers. Um, wow. They knew Butterfly McLean was not working. Um, everyone would just laugh when they saw her. Um, if she would, they would try to emulate her Gone with the Wind character, Prissy. Wow. They tried her so many different ways, like in a Jean Harlow style gown at one point, like trying to make her like seductive. Um, but it just wasn't working. They couldn't figure that out either. So huge, huge rewrites. And now we arrive at the Fisher Theater in Detroit. Wow. And here's what's nuts. There's no understudies. They have no understudies. Nothing. Back <laughs> up. My worst nightmare. So that's happening. Um, so Hinton Battle, ensemble guy that they love, that they want to do more with, he's hurt and out of the show. So he's watching the show. He got an injury, I guess, dancing in the show. He's watching Stu Gilman as the Scarecrow's performance is really, really tight because they were like, we want to consider you for an understudy for this. So he's like, okay, while he's injured, he devotes all of his injury time to learning the Scarecrow before they even give him like, here's your contract. Like he does this all on good faith, which is pretty nuts too. They also asked a few other folks to come on in for understudy auditions. Ted Ross, who played the lion, would be instrumental in getting Hinton Hinton the... um, upward mobility towards the scarecrow because he really was a fan of Hinton and he also helped him get ready for the undercity audition. 20th Century Fox is starting to um, add a little pressure too. They have all these changes that they want. They didn't like the length of a lot of things. They didn't like You Can't Win. They wanted that cut. They wanted the Adipurl scene rewritten. Scarecrow, be funnier. Um, Poppy scenes, not working. Just kind of like all these notes of like, not working, not working. Transitions are not smooth. Um, the sound levels are ear splitting. Like just so much is terrible. Oh no. So Gilbert would fight against a lot of these changes. So again, now Gilbert's kind of on some thin ice because who do you blame when everything's going wrong? The director. Director. Um, so it kind of continues this legacy too of just Oz always kind of being plagued with rotating revolving door of directors. <laughs> so they're reaching out to Bob Fosse, Hal Prince, who were not available. Um, Patricia Birch also, I think, has reached out to. And she's the one that says she would go on to work on Grease too, by the way. A little, a little Lorna left to Judy Garland connection. Um, oh gosh. She knew that Jeffrey had a hand in the ways and she was like, why aren't you asking Jeffrey to be your director? Um, Jeffrey's doing costumes, all that. So they're like, oh, right. We can just go back to Jeffrey and be like, can you be the full-time director again and the choreo- you know, help with choreography, all that stuff. Yeah. So 
this is what's crazy. There's a bar fight that happens between Gilbert and Jeffrey. And it's a literal bar fight. Yes. And it had to do. This is kind of gross. And another reminder that misogyny exists in every culture. Um, Charlie Smalls. It has to do with his mistress, I think. Like them wanting to get with his mistress or something. (sighs) Or a female cast member that they were both interested in. It's just, like, very seedy, like, women as property. Don't love it. Yeah. Don't love that. Don't like, I see you, man. This is not okay. Um, the fight ended up with, oh, it would, okay, it would be between Charlie Smalls, not not Jeffrey. Oh, my goodness. So, re saying, be between Charlie Smalls, composer, and Gilbert, director. So, this is even worse. Wow. Wow. Um, wow. wow. So the fight ended up with Charlie breaking a brandy snifter across Gilbert's face, almost blinding him. Oh my gosh. This book notes, you don't work together after that. Like that's kind of it. I think you're done. I think your friendship has (laughs) disintegrated. Gilbert is let go. He's fired on good terms, on good terms with Ken. Um, He would receive some royalties from the show and get a letter of recommendation for Ken for another thing down the line. Um, And this is when Jeffrey swoops on in. Um, and he, just to clarify, he would be billed as the director, but he really was a show doctor. Like Gilbert had set everything and he was just kind of fixing it. It's tricky. Like these terms are hard. Um, his eventual contribution would be huge, but it was more about tightening and trimming the show, which was very needed. And Gilbert could not do, he was just failing. He could not trim it. Um, so this was a kind of tense time for the cast. Their directors let go. And Jeffrey's coming on in. So this, I'm going to take this right from the book. When Jeffrey had installed himself as director, the cast was brought on stage and given the news. Gilbert Moses was actually sitting at the back of the auditorium watching, which helped charge the atmosphere with a healthy dose of tension. There was definitely a group of cast members that were pro Gilbert. Um, In particular, one cast member who had a strong personal connection with him. Ah, like, yeah, it just, yeah, it just is, uh, it was hard. So Jeffrey is like, we're going to have a brand new day. Like he's trying to like, <laughs> we're have a brand new day. He, he, he also brought sage in and, and he, he saged the whole entire. Bring that good energy in. <laughs> um, the toilets, everything. Oh my gosh. And he also got everyone free booze and food and tried to hug everybody to get everyone like, hey, like, I'm here for you. But like, there would be tensions with Jeffrey, too, throughout that are get very complicated. Um, so, but he's in. Jeffrey is now in. Wow. And he has all these ideas, too, for their to make their characters different. Like, he pulls aside... Dee Dee Bridgewater and Clarice Taylor, the witches, and tells them to imagine themselves as the Southern versions of Josephine Baker and Lena Horne meeting in Vegas for the first time. Uh, he has like all these kind of cool ideas um, and inspiration to give the actors that are very metaphorical. Um, he instilled a lot of glamour in the production, showing black people as elegant and proud. He would sit with the dance arranger for the tornado ballet and get in a disco flavor to it that would help solve the issues there, recostume it. They would go to Salvation Army to re- recostume it, which is so nuts. That's wild. Um, 
This is so cool. Okay. He would go to a sexy shop with his wardrobe team, in his words, and bought a pair of red boots and garter belts. He got a black rehearsal skirt and made the top like a bib with an eye in center, representing the eye of the storm. At the top of the bib was the beginning of a long train of black silk. The fabric was thrown over a bar and the flies of the theater so that the stagehands could feed the fabric to the dancer. As the dancer playing the tornado would dance, the fabric would move and flow like a funnel cloud. Then as the dancer moved into the group of male dancers, the fabric would in twine them until finally the tornado dancer would be on the top of Dorothy's house and the fabric would have been fed to wrap around the entire group. I mean, what? The audience went crazy over the tornado. Um, And then Butterfly McLean is um, demoted to understudying uh, at a pearl. Right. uh, Clarice Taylor. Uh, The Queen of Field Mice is cut. It's just not working. But she stays on. And she does that until like the Broadway run and then she pieces on out. Is this where they keep the five field mice, including Felicia Rashad? Including Felicia Rashad. Uh, They have a book doctor also come in, playwright Sam Bobrick. Um, And actually, this is, I think, good for our friend Bill. They actually can collaborate pretty well. They, They find a collaborative energy, the two of them. At first, it's not so good. But it gets better. They have him come in to help with get tighten up these scenes. That was on Fox. Fox forced that to happen. And then we get to the Forest Theater in Philadelphia, which that would be the final out-of-town tryout from December 20th to the 21st. So they had a change of Broadway opening because of this Forest Theater um, new out-of-town tryout because they still had to work things out. So they lost the Winter Garden, which is where they were supposed to go initially, but they were able to get the Majestic Home of Phantom of the Opera for Eternity. They were able to get the Majestic before Phantom of the Opera would move on in and take oh. Eternity. And the buzz on the road was pretty good at this point. It's starting to get better. And there's interest from other places to have the Wiz come to them eventually. Like, I think Canada is really interested too at this point. They are still struggling. Like people at Fox want to replace our, our writer Bill. Um, but it's actually, like I said before, this collaboration with the new the new dude, Sam, is actually going really well. So that that's one of the small little kinks that worked itself out, which is good. Like no one was fired. No one had to be fired. Collaboration could happen. Um officially cut. Which where, which what, which why. Officially yeah, out now. My favorite like they're, song. They're not allowed. To, they're not allowed to put it back in. It's gone. Oh. You can't win. Gone. Um, the actors are exhausted. They're always in rehearsal. Noting that. I'm sure. Really good revision of the Dorothy and Scarecrow scene would happen that would have the audience in stitches. So they're solving the problem of making that really fun. They're even... Fox is even wanting to try to let go of Ken Harper at some moments because it's like, this is his baby. Like, get out. <laughs> get um, out of here. They, they're finding him hard to talk to, but like no one will even touch it. No other producers are like, no, this is Ken's thing. So that kind of dissolves. Um, here's the big thing that happens in this Philadelphia run. Stu Gilman, the scarecrow was having health issues throughout the show, but the creative team loved him and they were trying to make, they were trying to work around it. He was never a great singer, but he had a really great comedic gift that was just so much fun for the scarecrow. This is awful. Um, the day that the show was start to start performances in Philadelphia, Stu was out eating at a restaurant. A white man started harassing him and ended up punching Stu. 
as luck would have it, the police would show up and, and, um, just as Stu was about to return the punch and they would arrest him saying Stu started this and they would put charges against him. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just another American case of police brutality and the um, harassment from local law officials when there is a white person to probably be blamed in the start of this whole entire fight. Um, but they of course were interrogating Stu it really wrecks Stu. It, it, like he went to do the show that night and could barely get through it. Um, yeah. For a good reason. You know, like he was, he was a mess. Bill Brown, the librettist, the white guy librettist. And I think this is what changed how the cast saw him. He was the good white guy. And I'm putting all the quotes around that to go to the cops and be like, you need to let him out. He would never do this. He fought for him to get him out. Wow. So he became responsible for him. I think he paid his bail. Um, so that was a big thing. So this is one of the first real racial issues with a cast member in the show out of town tryouts. And I often think about like when I, when I work out of town to like, especially in a show with folks who are not white, like the world is not all like New York city. A lot of the times it's a reminder with that. So Stu Gilliam was having a really rough time getting through his performance that night. It was the first preview from what I understand of the whiz at the forest theater in Philadelphia, which I've been to several times. Love the yes. forest. Theater. Um, because you know, he was hurt. A, he was injured. And also like the emotional repercussions that come with having Anything that involves the police, anything that involves racism, (laughs) just all of that. So he couldn't continue on. So after act one, he told the stage manager, Charlie Blackwell at the time, that he could not finish the performance. So this is pretty wild. um, But they knew that Hit and Battle had been quietly on the sidelines learning this role. So they're like, we're putting him in, which is beautiful in a way too they didn't force Stu to keep going on but there was no real understudy protocol in place so just noticing that and that's kind of been a i think it's starting to change in our industry now um like understudies sometimes are oh if we can afford it type of a thing but it's like no it's essential security so it is insurance to your show spend the money take the time because then all this hullabaloo happens and usually at the expense of somebody oh, because I you're not lost paid. My, I lost my voice during a production of sister act regionally with no understudy. And guess what? You just have to go on <laughs> and make it work. <laughs> and it and was not fun. It was terrifying. So I really wished vulnerable. I had one. Yeah. 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 Of course. Like it's really vulnerable and scary. Yeah. And then also there's a lot of, um, I feel like double-edged swords too with the world of calling out we've talked about on the podcast before that I do think is starting to heal. I do think people are starting to shift that narrative as calling out does not mean you're admitting that you're weak. Right. <sighs> Please, you're no more, no more records of like, I never called out. I don't okay. care. I don't I care. I want that gone. I want that yeah. gone from theater culture completely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that they just were like, we're honoring Stu. That is one thing I'm noticing just from filling in my own blanks of this research is that they didn't fight him to continue on, which is beautiful. But Hinton, oh my gosh, Hinton, you're on to a role you haven't even been officially given yet, but we have to put you in. So they like got him into hair and makeup. 
and there someone started running lines with him just concerned about getting him through act two which was a little bit better than act one act one is the heavyweight um act for the scarecrow this was a little bit more like passive he's more supporting dorothy in this act um and they had a little bit more time because he wasn't at the top of act two because of the long scene with eveline and apparently shoving with love shove with love was oh love it we need that he would uh pretend that his brain would escape him when he couldn't remember a line which is very in character of the scarecrow though i love it the rest of the cast would just pull him through and finish his lines for him i mean he really went on without a warning so that's what you got to do there's no other there's no other alternative um so they the next night was opening and they told him we probably are going to use you for that too. Um, and he's like, Oh my God. Like, okay. So am I this like air girl? Like what is happening? So he tells his mom to come fly in. Like this is a huge deal. Um, and then Stu can't, so he, they rehearse Hinton all day. Now they're like, okay, come into the theater early. We're going to get you through the show, do a crazy put in. And then Stu comes in later and was like, I feel terrible. I sh- we should not be making this, this young man learn this role in a day. Like, let me see if I could do this performance. But then he also, this is also pretty interesting from what I'm reading as reported is that Stu is like, but wait, hold on. You just rehearsed him all day. I want this to be Hinton's choice, not mine because you, you just took his time. I'm going through things, but I don't want him to feel like he has to carry tonight on his shoulders. Like I'm making up words of how this interaction could have gone. But from what I gather, Stu was being quite diplomatic in it. Like, which is beautiful to witness. It wasn't yeah. all about him. He recognized Hinton was working really hard to save the save um, the fact that the Scarecrow role had a no understudy. Um, so they decided um, that it would be best if Stu went on because that's it was their opening. So let's have Stu do it. If he was up for it, let's do it. Um, and it was his right to performing on opening night. So they went with that. Um, uh, Hinton's mom came in and was like, all right, well, I guess I'm just here for opening. And she didn't get to see her son do the show. She didn't think she was going to get to see her son do the show. So they have their opening night. And then the next day, Stu calls out. He is not going to go on. Um, so uh, Hinton keeps his mom in town so she can see the performance. And then this is where everything changes. So one of the Fox suits was in the audience. Gordon uh- Stolberg. Um, who loved Hinton's performance, loved the physicality he brought to the role because he was severely, he was much younger than Stu, um, and went to Ken and was like, Ken Harper was like, this is our scarecrow. So this is now we're in this hard part. This is a story that is reoccurring throughout our industry at all times. I think of Sutton Foster. Yes. Not the original Millie and Thoroughly Modern Millie, the show that gave her her big break and she won a Tony Award for. Crazy. It was not her. It was, I think. Yeah, who was it? Kristen was the 1999 demo? Yes, it was Erin Dilley. Erin Dilley. Erin Dilley. And you know what's crazy? This might be lore. I remember they casually brought this up on an episode of Smash, which Smash was like 
Grey's Anatomy, like how doctors must feel watching Grey's Anatomy is how I feel like most actors felt like watching Smash. It was just like the unrealistic version of being a a um, so heightened a musical theater actor. Like, oh, it's great. I mean, they got me when they had lunch in Times Square. I was like, never would I ever. Never would anyone do that. Have lunch at Times Square. Like, you oh got me gosh. here. We never do this. Um, but they casually like mentioned Aaron Dilly in like a shady moment. And I think Aaron Dilly, like, I think they may have like sued or asked them to take it out. This might be lore. I'm just gonna drop it here and see what if anyone on on the show they mentioned Aaron Dilly's name. Yes. And here's the thing: this is where Smash was so ridiculous. They would name drop people like Mary Testa, who's a well-known, amazing Broadway actress, but then like Burnett Peters wasn't Burnett Peters because she was a character on Smash. Right. It's confusing. Yeah, so they would like name drop people that only musical theater people know. Right. But then like someone like Bernadette is playing someone else. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, so Burnett Peters does not exist in this world. She doesn't world. exist in this world. That's she's so playing weird. this other character. Ugh, confusing. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, like this is a kind of tried and ta- what is the what is the saying? Tried and true. Tried and true story of our industry. We love a good oh the understudy. I mean Andrew McArdle, Annie. That was not her role. Crazy. There's another little girl. Um, oh, wow. same thing with the oh my gosh that 20th anniversary Annie tour. That was like the worst of it with that young girl Joanna something. They did a whole freaking nationwide search for this little girl. And then she got sick while they were on the road before the Broadway production. They liked the understudy better. They put the understudy on and took that role away from that little girl. That's so sad. I just will never forget that Barbara Walters interview and that little girl crying. Like, Oh my gosh, stop. I know. I was like, what are you doing? That's on you folks. I get mad at that stuff. I'm like, right. Martin Sharnan, bless, rest in peace. He recently passed. But I was like, Martin Sharnan, that was on you, bro. Yeah, you that's... made the decision. Stick with it. Don't just say it. discard. You right. made that decision. So you have to make her work. Yeah. You like, chose her for a reason. Yeah. I so, you know. I cannot. But anyways, so here wow. we go. This is what happens from what, how the whiz was says. Which we'll get into more of this book. Sometimes I'm now questioning a little bit Mm -hmm. um, because his opinion comes out way too much where I'm like, this is not um, reporting without your bias. Yeah, Yeah. it's very biased. He's very judgy with Diana Ross later on. And I'm just like, e, I don't want that. Like, I would like just a neutral. Yeah, we don't need judgment. I don't need your judgment, sir. But (laughs) here we are. Sir. But I'm grateful that he is the only person to ever in a book. Okay, so Stu... Was also, as I said, had health issues too. And this arrest issue, he also had other offers um, and for Hollywood stuff. So he was in this like, you know what, maybe it is time for me to say goodbye. All the powers that be thought it would be better for the show if he would leave. And Stu also was like, was it was a very amicable decision. Um, everyone was on the same page. He was like, you know what, I think I want to leave too. So when Hinton got back to his hotel room that night, he had a phone call from Ken being like, do you want to play the Scarecrow? Like forever. <laughs> so that is where all of that changed. Um, so he accepted and that, and then when they, the next day, um, I mean, wait, hold on. This was really handled classily. I will say like, I just looking at it, I'm like, this is, was handled with class. 
So they called a meeting on stage the next day and Stu told everyone the news. He came in and was like, I am leaving. I'm so That's sorry. Cool. I love you all. I love this show. Um, and he said, quote, I want you to know that I'm no longer the scarecrow, but I'd like you to meet the new one. And they had an applause for like Hinton coming out. Oh my gosh. Um, and Stu would go to the West Coast and that was him being done with the Wiz. Um, and just making it clear, like Stu wasn't fired. Very amicable decision. That's cool. um, got to be like and he did make a bunch of movies he made a bunch of movies right after this um so yeah this is it's a kind of a win-win situation like Stu goes to hollywood hinton gets like the break of his career um yeah, potentially can skyrocket out. him to a really great broadway career mm-hmm. so they did have to rework the book a little bit to suit Hinton's skills because Hinton is more like the street kid vibe and he's not this like older comic like Stu was. So they started adjusting the jokes and making um, the Scarecrow's character suit Hinton rather than Stu. Um, Also, there would be another major, this one, this person I think was let go. This was like a let go, maybe perhaps a firing situation. There would be one other person let go in this Philadelphia run. Um, Michael Peters, who was playing the lead Wing Monkeys, um, he would ad-lib a lot, and they were not having it. Um, and Ho- Jeffrey Holder, director, would talk to him about it and just would get you know ignored. So they replaced him with another dancer in the show named Annie Torres. But what's crazy is Michael Peters would go on to win a Tony as co-choreographer for Dreamgirls and choreograph wow. Michael Jackson's Thriller. So pretty Um, So the Philadelphia run was another punch in the face, a beat up, if you will. Like it was exhausting. They're still trekking through the show. The show is still surviving. And now we are on our way to Broadway with a better show in shape. No injuries. Everyone's healthy, at least just tired. (laughs) And here we go. Like the struggles are starting to be behind them. When was the last day of uh, the Philadelphia tryout? You know what? It's crazy. It's like they like opened. I think they started previous on Christmas Eve in New York. So this ended on the 21st. Like no one cared about the holidays. We're like, work through. Like Keep going. We don't care. Keep going. We don't wow. care about the holidays. Crazy. Wow. Crazy. So that's Wiz up until the opening actual. at the Majestic no, wait, is that right? Yeah. Opening at the Majestic, not the Winter Garden. Not. Like we originally wanted. <gasps> I can't wait. So much here. I'm like, my mind's exploding on like Instagram projects. <laughs> there is so much here and it's only about to get crazier. So y'all take a breather because <laughs> get ready. There's a lot coming your way. We're giving you hours of research this week. <laughs> as i shove a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my mouth this is hours oh there's pages upon pages in my google doc that i'm excited to share next week no um you mean wednesday i mean wednesday <laughs> can't even keep track anymore stay, stay tuned everyone stay tuned and go get yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because they're the best things to this eat an incredible this is an incredible thing to witness <laughs> Okay, we'll see you on Broadway. Okay, see you on Broadway. Bye. Bye. 
Because we promised you that if you let me make love to you, then why can't I touch you would take you out. Here's us upholding that bargain. Here it is. This magic moment. What a predicament. Yikes. But like sing. Love you, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod. If you are feeling frisky with your fingertips, scroll on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review. Each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end-of-the-season Oz giveaways, Mm. including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods, which, trust me, you aren't going to want to miss. All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon. Gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL!